Hi, everybody. Welcome on this uh, 20 years from 9-11. Hard, hard to really imagine um, that uh, it's, it's already 20 years. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be joined today by Ankar Gatte and Ilan Giono from the Ayn Institute to, to uh, uh, help me analyze what happened on 9-11, why it happened, and uh, what was our response? And uh, to what extent is that response, is that response uh, made us safer? What are the long-term consequences of the response? And where are we today vis-a-vis -vis the events of 9-11? So Ilan, Ankal, welcome. Hi, Ron. Hey. Uh, so um, yeah, just, uh, just a, so the administrative stuff, uh, Super Chat is on. I think we're streaming this both on the Einmed Institute um, YouTube channel and Facebook channel and on uh, the Run Book Show YouTube channel, Facebook channel. Uh, and uh, Super Chat is on in both places. Elon will be monitoring the Super Chat on the Einman Institute page, and uh, I'll be monitoring it on the Run Book Show page. Free feed to ask questions, uh, submit questions uh, through the Super Chat. Make sure the questions for today are on topic. Uh, we're not going to address miscellaneous uh, things. Uh, we'll keep those for another time. Uh, so uh, keep the questions on topic. Uh, is uh, is sound good at this point? Okay, sound is good now. Okay. Um, so um, that is uh, the super chat. Other than that, uh, show everything is uh, everything is good. I'm going to switch the view to kind of speak of you uh, so we don't have all of us on the screen at the same time. And uh, we'll go for it now. So I think we'll start with just some recollections of what it was like on 9-11 on um, in 2001. Uh, all of us were working at the, all of us were uh, working at the Android Institute. Uh, it was, we were in California, so it was early in the morning. Uh, when uh, when the planes hit the buildings, uh, I remember. I mean, I don't remember much of the day, <laughs> other than in, those of you who know me know I don't remember much of much of the past anyway. But um, I remember seeing. I, I remember watching TV and seeing it happen. Uh, and I remember kind of the the first few hours. I don't remember the rest of the day, the rest of, other than driving to the Institute, I don't remember anything that happened afterwards. Um, and I don't remember the days afterwards, um, other than, we'll talk a, a little bit about some of the stuff we did right in the days afterwards. But I, so, so the way I was awoken, because Amy, Amy Peacock was actually uh, coming to the house to take Revital to LA, my wife, and she, they were going to drive together to LA, and they, they they arrived early. And Amy knocks on the door, says, "Turn on the television." You know, there's been some kind of accident. A plane has gone into the building, and I turned on the television. I was, I think, I was still in bed. And so I, so as I'm watching the television, the second plane goes into the second tower, and I'm still in shock over it. Right? It's still incredibly emotional because it was unthinkable. I mean, you can imagine kind of an accident, something weird, something strange has happened. Once the second plane hit, it was obvious that it was, was a, a, some kind of terrorist attack. 
it turned the world upside down in many respects. It was something I'd never expected to see in America. It actually, funnily enough, a few years earlier, 1997, I remember sitting in a restaurant in um, Santorini, <laughs> Greece, with Leonard Peikoff, arguing with him that Islamic terrorists would never attack the United States. <laughs> and he would say they would, and I said they wouldn't, they were too incompetent, they were too, they just didn't have it in them. And it, it was just, it was happening and it was just shocking. Um, I remember, you know, fairly quickly after that, I decided to go to the Institute. I can't remember, I talked to Anka, I think on the car on the way up. Yeah. I don't think we talked in advance, but I think once I started driving, I talked to Ankar and he was heading in. Um, and I remember, I think I took some side roads. I, I, I wasn't sure how to approach the airport because I had to cross the airport in order to get to. And I, I remember Leonard called me and said, don't go. It's too dangerous. <laughs> and um, and we so I. I, I Drove in, and I remember we all huddled together and, and decided on a, on a plan um, and, and started executing on that plan, including asking Leonard to write um, write up, uh, the, to, to write what he wrote, uh, land up writing. Although, no, that came about a few days later, actually. That came on the Friday after 9-11 that we made that decision. Uh, so any recollections? Uh, we'll start with you, Anka, and then Ilan. Yeah, so what I remember, I had a similar experience to you that it was my brother who called me. He gets up early and I, we're on the West Coast. So that he said, turn on the TV, you've got to see. And it, the same I was watching when the second plane went into the second tower. What I remember is the, so the shock of it, the emotion of it, a lot of the images have been sanitized. Now, if you watch footage, um, yep. there were horrifying things about people burning up and jumping out of the buildings and things like that. I remember that. I remember at some point that it was, it was clear um, that everybody's in shock and paralyzed because they can't process it, but also they can't take, like there's an attack on US soil. They can't think where it would come from even though the towers itself have been attacked before yep. by Islamic terror. It, it's, and Bush, the president, President Bush is nowhere to be seen. He's oh, pulled out of the classroom. Yeah. And then it's, so there was, there was a government presence in the sense that there was the police and the firefighters in New York City, but there was no military present, presence and no kind of spokesman for the government. And at some point it was that it was, Okay, well, we need to go into the office and speak. So um, I told my wife I'm going into the office. And I lived, what I also remember is I lived like five to 10 minutes from LAX at the time. And it had never been that quiet. I mean, LAX has planes going basically 24 hours. And it was eerie silence. And when I drove to the Institute, which was, which was also close to LAX, the roads were completely empty. I've never seen LA like that um and when i decided to go in i called either you called or from the, your car we called you to say what, what are you doing and you, you were already driving in at that point and um yeah so what what i remember is that it the, I, the sort of the paralysis that people couldn't act they didn't know what to do they didn't know how to process it 
once it became clear it was a, an attack and not an accident, they, they just couldn't fathom it. And that, that is telling, as we'll talk about, that it, for, for most people was this came out of the blue, which yep. it should not have been. I mean, as you said, Leonard was, was, wasn't surprised by this. And At all. Um, rightly so. Did we see the towers coming down? I can't remember at home or at the institute. Like, I, I think at least one I saw before getting into the institute. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that that was almost more shocking. I mean, these skyscrapers just collapsing on themselves and everything that meant. And at that point, nobody knew was it three thousand people? Was it sixty thousand people? Because at the at the peak. You know, there are forty to sixty thousand people in those towers, and uh, it, it was it was just it was just unbelievably shocking and scary and, and bewildering. But but it wasn't, but it was understandable in a sense that it wasn't paralyzing. Whereas the authorities were paralyzed, and the news commentators were paralyzed. They had no idea what was going on. They had no sense of of how to explain it or, or, or what it was like. Ilan, you're- yeah, I wanted to add to that. So I, I have a similar recollection. I was awakened by a friend calling me to say, turn the TV on. And I, 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 I must have tuned in or about the same time you two did. I saw the first plane and the second plane. And I remember the thought that crossed my mind at that point. And I think it was, I was, I was a lot younger and naive. And what occurred to me was, it's going to be really hard to rescue those people. Like what fire truck can they get up there? Like how do you even, what kind of, and as I'm processing the second plane, I think, okay, this is really, really out of the ordinary. This is not an accident. And then as I'm thinking about what the rescue would look like, and then, then I, I'm watching TV and the, the, the towers implode. And, and it's, it's a very strange thing to know that what you're watching is some untold number of thousands of people dying on tv live and just the the horror of it is and and then to to your point about people being paralyzed not knowing how to process it a couple of things are really worth stressing so there was no social media at this time i mean the web was in its infancy i think this is really significant so i went i was at the office i think i was the second person in uh that morning and i I, we turned the tv on and i started uh, getting ready for the uh, the day uh, and I remember going to find out what's new. What do we know? How, where did this come from? And the New York Times website crashed. If you think this is the leading paper in the country, it crashed. All they could, within an hour, they were back up. And so just think of how many people it would take in 2001 when the internet wasn't that popular yet and people were dialing up for, to crash a website of a news source. And then within an hour, they had one page with one headline and one image, that's all that their server could handle with the number of people asking questions. And when you turn to the news, to your point about commentators not knowing what to do, the news for, this is probably not accurate exactly, but the way memory works. My recollection is for the next 48, 72 hours, the news was on a loop of the available video clips of the planes flying, the buildings falling and nothing being said. It was just, we don't know what's going on. There's war and there's updates from ground zero. There's tallies of people lost and, but there's nothing to know. There wasn't any kind of explanation. And I do remember, I think Tom Brokaw was still on the air. If people remember him as a news anchor. And in the first day, some of the news commentators or anchors at least, because they didn't have 
talking heads immediately were there were very very uh eager or or not some other right word they, they were willing to call it an act of war that was the initial reaction and then that faded that wasn't well we don't really know anymore and that so a few days later that wasn't the way it was being described as much um so you know the, there was hard to get information and the, i think there was no real understanding initially uh, about that and one other thing i wanted to say um i wasn't i was obviously in california like you guys but if you knew people in new york if you read about what was it, what was it was like in downtown manhattan there's a there's a, a story i reread this morning from september 12th it was a the front page story of the new york times just recounting experiences from ground zero and you 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 made the point on car that the videos and images have been sanitized it's well worth revisiting just uh that account because the sense of unbelief that happened people had no idea what was going on they couldn't believe this was happening in america and this is this is the anecdote that that really gets to me and i remember this feeling after the second plane hit and the buildings hadn't fallen yet exactly and if i remember this correctly they heard people in the, on the ground in manhattan heard another plane and all eyes went to the sky is this another one or is it and then it turns out it's a fighter jet because of course they, they by that point they'd scrambled the military but then then in the coming weeks any time you saw a plane flying i remember people thinking what's happening like is it flying too low is it normal is this typical am i used to this flight path or, and then and then i think also people were wary of going into tall buildings as if you know the next tall building to be hit would be you know the, maybe the one in downtown LA or or in Chicago the Sears Tower uh so there was a real i mean you could tell people were uh, at sea in, intellectually and and fear i think was real it, and it was understandable but it was real uh in those first few hours and days yeah i mean it was uh, definitely i just want to warn everybody there's a it sounds like there's a storm outside which uh might um interfere with our internet connection we'll see uh but uh the wind is blowing and suddenly it's pouring rain so uh we'll, we'll, if there are any disruptions it's because of that yeah i mean they grounded all the planes that day and they kept them grounded for at least a week i can't yeah. remember exactly because i i was scheduled to teach a class on the friday after 9/11 in um uh, up at Santa Clara University i was teaching a, an executive mba class and they were going ahead with the executive MBA program. So I, I drove, um, I drove that Friday up to uh, Santa Clara because I couldn't fly uh, to teach a class. And it's on that drive that I, I had a conversation with John Allison and uh, John Allison basically said, let's get a, let's get a full page ad in the New York times and, and at the time, we thought Wall Street Journal, I could tell the story of the Wall Street Journal, uh, but uh, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and, um, and, and, and let's get it done and let's, let's get Leonard to author it. And I, you know, so that was a conversation I was having as we're heading up. And uh, that's how the, the Leonard Peikoff uh, article started, really, was, uh, was uh, from, that, uh, from that conversation. Um, but yeah, the, the, the complete bewilderment, the shock, on the other hand, the knee-jerk patriotism, the flags coming out, um, Bush giving that talk uh, at on the site, I think the day after, 9-12, uh, 
he gives this very patriotic speech at, at, on the site and everybody's like, you know, his approval ratings go to 90 percent um, that day and, and everybody rallies around, which is appropriate, but ultimately landed up being empty in a sense of of uh, of what it meant and the actions taken. Uh, but it 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 was. Um, it, it, it was shocking to see how quickly people rallied around even before they knew what was going on and what was happening. Of course, uh, we didn't even mention the, the third plane that yeah, that's on, uh, on, yeah on. attacked the Pentagon. And then, and then of course, 93, Flight 93, that for a long time, we didn't even know what happened to it. We knew it went down in Pennsylvania. I think it took a couple of days maybe before we um, uh, before we understood, you know, the heroism of the people involved there. I mean, truly heroism. Let's roll, and let's roll became like a a bit of a, a slogan within within the institute uh, for a while. In terms of, you know, we, we need to get out there. We need to get the word out. We need to get our analysis out there. Um, and I, I think I I ended I ended the first talk I gave a year afterwards with with kind of the words "Let's roll," um, and that that you said at the outset, it's hard to believe it's 20 years. And what I find also hard to believe is when speaking in front of young people. So there's people who weren't even born yet. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a sense of what it was, but it was, I think part of the patriotic reaction was it was clear to the American people that that were under attack. Yeah. That this is um, when your plane goes into the Pentagon. And I forget when it came out that the United 93 flight was, the trajectory was for DC, and I forget when the speculation was it was headed for the capital. Came, but that it's so it wasn't. It was New York, it was Washington, and in the immediate hours afterwards, it was. You said all the planes were grounded. I mean, they didn't know were there other hijacked planes. They, they scrambled fighter jets to shoot down planes if yep. there were more of these. And I mean, part of why LAX was. Uh, I mean, eerily silent, silent is everything was grounded. Everyone was told to come to a standstill because they didn't know what was going on. So I think to the American people, it was clear this is an attack. And it when when it's clear to them, it's an attack on U.S. soil. So I, I think part of the shock was sort of your reaction, Iran, that it America's separated by oceans on both sides. There's a sense of invulnerability to it. And the, the, there was both the okay we're vulnerable but it's an attack and we need to do something about it and it was the the, the patriotism was this war requires a response and a yeah. military response yeah and i, I think to, in my defense um in my argument with leonard i had no clue that the american intelligence services was clueless and as incompetent as they turned out to be so, so, you know, if you've read about what led up to 9-11 in the media that year before, the number of opportunities they had to stop this, the number of opportunities to catch them, the, 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 the level of incompetence of the terrorists and, and amateurism of the terrorists was, was quite shocking. And the only reason it wasn't caught is because of, of uh, lack of communication between the FBI and the CIA and distrust between the FBI and CIA, all the data was there for them to be able to see that something was going on and even to identify the people and, and they completely you know, failed. It was a massive failure beyond the bigger foreign policy failure, which wouldn't have surprised me. I guess I, 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 I was surprised at how incompetent 
the intelligence agencies were. I've always thought they actually, well, I shouldn't have thought that because they were incompetent in the Cold War and, and uh, you know, they, they've made some pretty bad errors and pretty bad assessments over many, many years. All right, so, so let's talk a little bit about what leads up to this, right? Um, because, I mean, you, are, you were mentioning to me, Ankar, that you're watching a documentary about what led up to 9-11. And it starts with... Um, uh, it, it, it starts with Afghanistan. It starts with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It's the, the CIA support of the of uh, of what uh, becomes later the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and goes from there. That's not where we think it started. Um, how would uh, how would you identify the beginning or the the, the 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 source of of what led to this? You want to take that along? Sure. I, I think the the road is is much longer than people realize the road to 9-11 the i think the major uh, it really begins at the gates of the u.s embassy in tehran in 1979 i mean there's a lot that leads up to 1979 the the whole development of the islamist movement across the 20th century is a story that we can get into another time but i i go to the embassy in 1979 because that's the point at which there's a uh, an invasion of the embassy American diplomats taken hostage. It's a story that some people might be familiar. And what happens is that America is roundly humiliated for over a year. Uh, this is under the Carter administration. The, it's a complicated story how it comes about, but the upshot is that the, the whole uh, hostage taking and the humiliation becomes something that the new Islamist regime under Ayatollah Khomeini used to their advantage. They parade Americans on TV this becomes uh, a test. Uh, so the, the Islamist regime in Tehran was already inspiring to Islamists all over the place. Now they're able to humiliate this, the great Satan, as they called us. And eventually the US, I mean, there were attempts to, to there was a, a botched attempt to bring some of the diplomats back, a, a failed military effort. But the upshot was the Carter administration just approached this with the goal of appeasing the threat. And they even capitulated, they paid ransom to get Americans free. Uh, it's a sordid story that you can look into. What happens after this is that Khomeini and the Iranians and everyone watching, all the Islamists would be conquering territory, would be imposing their beliefs wherever they can. They're looking at this and they draw the lesson. Well, you know what? It turns out you can actually get the better of this powerful infidel country and this is an adds fuel to the fire of this movement. Uh, and then there's the, following that. So this is 1979-1980, and they're released, uh, I think, the day of the inauguration when Ronald Reagan takes office. Then you get a series of various attacks on American targets, particularly in Lebanon, where America sent peacekeepers, uh, a suicide bombing of the U.S. embassy in Beirut, and then the bombing of the U.S., Marine barracks in Beirut. And, and so there's an escalating spiral of attacks. And in every case, there is American rhetoric that we won't let this stand. How dare you? We won't. And then America retreats and appeases. And then this continues with hostage takings of Americans. And then it just, as you can imagine, this what fuels this movement is the partly is the belief that they can succeed. And the American response in the decades up to 9-11 reinforces that belief because we don't take 
real action. I mean, if, if you zoom forward to the Clinton era, there is uh, simultaneous bombings of American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Terrible loss of life. And this is, no, this is one of the first acts of Al-Qaeda. So Bin Laden has already constituted the, what Al-Qaeda means, the base or the network, if I remember correctly. And he's already constituted. He's trying to rally the Islamist movement around him. And what happens after the, the bombing of these two embassies? I mean, you probably remember this. There was, there was an, uh, some bombs were dropped on training camps. Ten, you, you leveled some tents. Uh, and then I think it, this also involved a, a, a reprisal against a pharmaceutical uh, f- factory, uh, which was empty. I think the one known victim was a night watchman. Uh, and that was really treated, I think there was no conception of this as well. There's a growing pattern here. They keep doing this and we keep appeasing them or not, not taking sufficient action. And you can see going from 1998 when they bombed the embassies in Africa to 2000, and there's a bombing uh, 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 of a US military ship in port in Yemen, in Aden. Now, just think of this. So you're thinking about a, a, a massive war machine, a floating fortress, and these Islamists get in a boat they put a whole bunch of explosives on it. They, they ride the boat out to the, the side of the U.S. vessel, the U.S.S. coal, and they blow a hole through the side of it. And think of the audacity that that takes. Like you're up against a massive, uh, uh, essentially, a war machine, and this is what you do. And they get away with it. And so, and, and, then, and then, you know, the, it's not the, just the a boat. Elon, it, you know, I, I think it was 12 sailors died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's, a, there's loss of life in almost every one of these, uh, massive loss of life. In it. And, and just think of what, how humiliating it is to be someone serving on the USS Cole, to lose your, your, um, your compatriots, not in action, but in, a, in, a, in essentially in a terrorist attack or an act of war that, by people in a dinghy. And, the, and here there's a, a response to this and within a few, by the time the Bush takes office, this is still an issue. Like, what are we gonna do about this coal bombing? Like, to, yeah. It happens in 2000. And the response from Condoleezza Rice, who was at the time an advisor on foreign policy to the Bush administration was, we're not in the business of swatting flies. So you have this whole trajectory from 1979 onward. And it's, you can, I've mapped this in an article that appears in one of the books we put out whether, and this is not every attack, it's just the major ones. And if you look at the reactions to it, it's a pattern of increasing aggression, appeased, which fuels further and more daring aggression. And so when you think about, you know, I skipped over the, two, the 1993 attempt to bring down the World Trade Center, which you mentioned briefly, but that was a part of the pattern. And to think, well, and that killed, I think, 40, a number of people, and it was really, uh, Mm-hmm. Only through their incompetence, they didn't succeed in bringing the towers down. They had a massive load of explosives. So you see this progression all the way through to 2000. And th- so these are just things you could observe that were public knowledge. And then over and above this, it, what's significant is listening, listening to the statements of Ayatollah Khomeini for 20 years, or however long he was alive, I think he died in 89. And then the statements from Osama bin Laden. So he puts out letters to the world. He puts out a, a declaration of war to the United States. Now, it, I can see people looking back at that and 
and thinking, well, he's, he's, he seems like a nutcase, right? Who sends out a, but you have to recognize the context in which he's doing this. He's doing this as a speaker to people in a movement he's trying to rally. And it's fascinating to read these letters and these other statements. What is his, his whole view of this? Now, this is published and it's easily available. I think the one is in two, 1996, another one is 97, mm-hmm. 98, I forget the dates. So this is all happening amid a, a cascade of, of growing attacks. And in that respect, the, the lead up to 9-11 or the road to it, there's a lot to criticize in the, administ- the various administrations in their intelligence and how they didn't cooperate. And I think we can, let's, let's just bracket that for a moment because I, I don't think that's really the full story. But there was just so much, it, it is a staggering failure of conceptualization to not think, wait a minute, this is our job, our job as, as analysts in the CIA and other agencies, our job is to look at this stuff, to piece together all these uh, episodes and to think, where is this going? What are they trying to do? What's the pattern here? And what are they telling us, openly telling us they want to do? And what are they showing us in response to our uh, uh, policy? Yeah, so, so I want to get the conceptual part in a minute. Sure. So let's uh, let's let's uh, just uh, I want to highlight a few of the things you said in terms of the concretes that happened. Um, so, I mean, things that Bin Laden mentions in his letters, in those letters, um, the eighty-three bombing of the Marine barracks, two hundred forty-four Marines. I think it's two hundred forty-four or four hundred forty-four. It was a significant number uh, of of Marines are killed. Um, as Bin Laden describes it, America then, you know, tail between its legs, leaves Lebanon, a, a few bombs into the Baqa Valley, into, into the valley, doing nothing, just like we did with the Afghanistan training camps and, and nothing. Um, of course, the, as you said, he, 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 the, we did nothing with the Iranians. Uh, uh, Reagan is considered this tough guy. Reagan was president in 83, but Reagan also... Uh, the reason that Khomeini released the prisoners in um, on, on the day Reagan is inaugurated is because there's a deal in the background uh, to to allow for these release. It's not because of fear. It's again, it's some kind of pragmatic deal that is being cut appeasement. Uh, again, um, there is under Bush Senior. There is uh, just to add. There's the whole uh, Salman Rushdie affair where uh, a fatwa on Salman Rushdie, uh, who, who's living in England but whose publishers in the United States uh, get threatened and firebombs in stores. The United States does nothing. On the contrary, Bush actually suggests maybe it's not a good idea to, to, to um, insult Islam uh, and to insult religion. And, and it's just, it's, it's on and on and on. And well, who knows what the CIA was saying? Who knows what the intelligence agencies were analyzing and telling these guys? But clearly our politicians refuse to... Um, refused to connect the dots and refused to identify an ideology at, at the source of the enemy. And I want to get to that next. But I'll just add that Afghanistan plays a role here, right? So, so it's not, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is this uh, jihadi um, uh, attack in Afghanistan against uh, the, the, the Russians, the, the, the Soviets, uh, led by people committed to the same ideology that at the side is attacking the United States in various parts of the world. The CIA is helping them because at that point, their analysis is the Soviets are a bigger threat than the Islamists. So let's help the Islamists. The enemy of my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend somehow, but that's a lesson 
you know, that's that's a lesson we took from World War II, right? We, the Soviets were our friend then because the enemy was the Nazis. So we've always held that kind of pragmatic belief that we can uh, we can work with our enemies. Um, and of course, then it 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 leads up to um, it leads up to the to the Taliban takeover and ultimately Al Qaeda getting to where it is. So, Anka, what is what is the ideology? I'd say of two things. One is of those committed to attacking the United States. Uh, the the thread, the ideological thread that goes from seventy nine on. And then, you know, maybe this is a separate question. But what is the ideology that prevents us from connecting the dots from seeing the picture. Yeah, so what we see is in the Middle East is the rise of, I mean, one of the ways we've conceptualized it is Islamic totalitarianism. So it's a, and you see it in Iran, but you see it in Afghanistan. And I think, unfortunately, it's being charitable to, to our foreign par- policy architects to think that they thought of it, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They can't even conceive of them exactly as an enemy. They have some sense, they're not very nice people, but they can't, and I think that is, it's very telling. Uh, And this is part of what I was watching. And there were CIA people talking about how they armed the the Afghan resistance, knowing, yeah, these people aren't very nice people. You wouldn't want them dating your sister, I think is one way someone put it, but they can't conceive that there's an ideology at work here and that it's a vicious ideology in the same way that communism and Nazism are vicious totalitarian ideologies. And I mean, you brought up that the Cold War was, um, it wasn't, we didn't win it through great strategy on the part of the US. We won it because communism collapses. I mean, it, it cannot produce and it does collapse on itself, even if we aided it in various kinds of ways, but even our aid wasn't enough to stop it from internal collapse, but they couldn't conceive really of communism as an ideology and what it means, what it looks like to be committed to it. So in this case, you have the rise of a, of a religious ideology demanding total power, political power to put their version of Islam into existence. And that, that's what the Iranian revolution is in 79. It's part of why the the embassy is taken. That's what is rising in Afghanistan and rising really across the Middle East. And, and, and uh, just to add that, uh, you know, the, the Iranian revolution is a model for people. I mean, it inspires them across the entire Muslim world, all the way to Indonesia. You know, you read uh, 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 these terrorists afterwards, even Sunni Shiites, it doesn't matter. The fact that Iran could implement it politically and the United States didn't stop them and could stand up to the United States in spite of all these Islamist movements across the entire Middle East. And yeah, so, and it's part of, Alon, you were hammering on the issue of humiliation. And I remember the Iran um, embassy crisis. I was nine years old, but I remember watching basically every day on TV, on the news, and it was humiliating. It was to see the American hostages paraded on TV. And what was conveyed was utter impotence. And this is after Afghanistan, I'm sorry, after Vietnam. And yeah. the, that, that there's already the sense of the, of the failure in Vietnam. And then you have this crisis and the US cannot, it seems, do anything about it 
And so there's simultaneously that there's humiliation. And you, you think if we felt the humiliation, what they must have felt that they can bring the most powerful nation um, basically to its knees. And that, so that you get Iran, that it's recruiting people to this. And that part of the recruitment is we seem to be unable to do anything. We can't even conceive of what is going on and to understand what is going on. It, I mean, the, the history you gave, um, Alon, I think part of saying that we can't conceive of what is happening, we can't even conceive of it as connected to governments. It's still treated as terrorist and more criminal activity, and we have to bring these people to justice. But bring these people to justice means get them in a courtroom and have a trial. So they can't connect that what you've got a movement that is inspired by and crucially connected to governments throughout the and regimes throughout the Middle East. And this is part of pragmatism. I mean, Ayn Rand wrote from the 60s on to the 80s that what, what has engulfed uh, America at that time, and I think it goes into the 80s and 90s, is a pragmatist attitude, which is scornful of abstract ideas. Abstract, like there, yeah, there's a few people in universities who care about this thing, but if you care about reality, practical world, getting things done, you dispense with um, abstractions, with principles, with ideas. So to a pragmatist, ideology has no reality. Either like, what does America stand for? They could not articulate other than some bromides about the flag and apple pie and so on. There's nothing of content um, about what America stands for. And I think this is part of the Rushdie thing that it, like freedom of speech, but that's an abstract idea. Who cares about that? Why did he have to insult Islam? And so, and like, if you told people before that instant incident that you would have a regime, a barbaric regime in the Middle East, putting a price on the head of a, someone in the West calling for his assassination, recruiting people to that. And the, our governments would do nothing. And as you said, worse than nothing was, yeah, maybe he has it coming to him. Like, like that as, as like what could be more humiliating than that? And thinking of it from the other direction, like they think we've put a price on this guy's head and we're met with no resistance. Indeed, we're they, they, they're opening the door saying, well, they, that, they're criticizing Rushdie. So, but to a pragmatist ideology has no meaning. They're, what America stands for has no meaning. And the idea that other people could take seriously an ideology and be rallying around it doesn't have any reality to that kind of, so I think they could not, it's worse when we get after 9-11, but at that point, I think they, it's, You've got people in power who can't even conceive of that there's such a thing as people committed and committed to giving their life to an ideology. It has no meaning to them. And how much, how much do you think this is being driven by, um, by altruism? I mean, obviously, the pragmatism and, and the lack of ideology on our side and the lack of ability to understand the other side. But we're strong. We're powerful. We've got the biggest military in the world. To what extent is our lack of response a consequence of altruism? I mean, I think it's a major aspect to it. But again, I think it becomes much more clear sure. post 9-11 um, than pre-9-11. But for sure, there's an element uh, that, it, that if America dares assert itself, 
that is the kind of criticism that will come down is, well, but who are you? You're the strong. You're supposed to be catering to the weak, to those in need. You're supposed to be bringing them hospitals and medicine and food, not bombs and fighting. But the, um, the one episode that we haven't talked about in the kind of run up to 9-11, which I think is significant, is the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. which is, and in some ways that did erase the sense that uh, of kind of imp- military impotence for the U.S., but what's telling about it is it has, it's altruistic. So it's Kuwait's been invaded. Now we can do something. If we've been attacked, who are we to say that we can fight back? But little Kuwait has been invaded by big Iraq. Now we can do something and we can derive, drive the, the Iraqis out and Hussein out of Kuwait. But it has no ideology. And like we have no strategy of what we're trying to do other than someone's in need and we have to help them out. And there's no conception that this is not the major problem in the Middle East from the standpoint of what the threat is to America. Um, and that, so th- there's an altruism for sure there. And, and of course, there's no completion of the mission in a sense of, you know, if you're going to go to war, there was no clear strategic aim. There was no purpose. There was no, okay, so you get them out of Kuwait. Now what? Um, uh, you know, do you go to Baghdad? Don't you go to Baghdad? I mean, nobody knew, it seems like nobody really had a vision and any kind of sense of, of, of how this will end. Ilan, a lot of the, a lot of the left, certainly a lot of libertarians, and, um, you know, they argue that we've got this story wrong, right? That the real cause of all this is if you read Bin Laden is not our appeasement and our weakness and their uh, ideological commitment. The real cause is our presence in the Middle East, our, uh, you know, they still bring up the, the Iranian revolution is justified because we killed the prime minister of, or, we, or the CIA helped depose, not even kill a prime minister of Iran in 1954, I think, something around then. And then um, the fact that the troops in Saudi Arabia, remember, Bin Laden makes a big deal out of American troops in the Holy Land, infidels in the Holy Land. How do you respond to, um, to kind of those claims? I think we're going to see it again today in a lot of the commentary on this. Uh, this was all our fault. It's our foreign policy. I mean, one of one of the reasons I and all of us really opposed Ron Paul so vehemently uh, when he ran for president was because this is his attitude. It was all America's fault, not America's fault in the sense that we appeased them, but America's fault in the sense that we brought it upon ourselves. So what's the answer? It's a gross misunderstanding and misconceptualization of what happened. And I think it's it's motivated. It's not, a, I think it's people who push this line and who are responsible for knowing the facts. I think there's an, a, an aim here of not seeking the truth, but affirming a certain agenda or a certain perspective. So let's take some of these and, and unpack them. So I think the biggest one is uh, Osama bin Laden talks about a number of things, including American troops in Saudi Arabia defiling the Holy Land. And he talks about uh, uh, the, the, the harm that's being done to Palestinians, our other Muslim brothers in the region. Go, go read what he says. And I, I, I've read it. I think it's really interesting. And I think if you read that and what you take away is, American foreign policy is the problem, then you are really not giving due attention 
to what he, the, the premises of his argument. So the premises of his argument are, we know that Islam has to rule, it's the truth. And part of what he's about is bringing the truth to full flourishing and full realization where he can. That's the point of being in the path of Allah. The objection to American troops is that they're in the Holy Land, in the land of the two holy places, Saudi Arabia. And it's the, they're infidels. They don't belong there. How dare you violate what should be holy as long? And, and what is his objection to Israel? It's that it is a, a non-Muslim power governing a holy place that belongs to Islam, the, the Dome of the Rock. And what is his objection to the, what's his view of the Palestinian issue? Is there some outcome of that that would satisfy him? Yes, the outcome in which the Muslims dominate and kill all the Jews and push them into the ocean. So th yeah, there's no policy here where you could tweak it and, and come up with some, yeah, if we just make these adjustments, he'd be happy because the outcome that he's starting from <clears throat> that he wants to reach is Islam must dominate. Anything that, that deviates from that is abhorrent. It has to be overruled. It's the same sort of thing with um, why does wh why do the Islamists object to the Egyptian rule in Egypt? It's not. I don't think it's primarily because America is allied with Egypt. I think that's a knock against Egypt. But it's because Egypt is an infidel or not infidel, or impious regime. It's not sufficiently religious. So I think any there is really no way to understand Bin Laden or just Islamists more generally. Like if you think about what we talked about with the Salman Rushdie, which we should come back to in a second the whole way of understanding the world from their premises is this is our goal. Islam is the truth. You must, you must swallow it. And we're going to put a knife to your throat until you do. And if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back after you. And when you see the concrete issues like Palestine or uh, American foreign policy, it's no, you didn't. It's not that they got the wrong policy. It's that there is no policy we could follow in the Middle East that would satisfy them except rolling over and dying and leaving. And I think that's the essential to take that. Now, I don't want to get into, I mean, people who are interested in, in the Iran um, 1953 coup, and the, I don't think it's really, I mean, go read about it, read reputable historians. And there's some interesting new work being done on that that's been published in the last five years. And I recommend reading that because it is nothing like as simple a story as you think it is. The American role, as I read it, is, they were really incompetent and, and trivial elements of it. Incompetent in the sense they didn't have a clue what they were going to do with this. And if, but that's, that's just the history part of it, which people who are making this argument have a responsibility to really understand before they make a claim about it. But then to think about if, you, if this actually were true, would it, justify what, would it justify creating a totalitarian regime in Iran? Like you're upset about this uh, removal of a, what became an authoritarian leader, but it, it doesn't, I mean, there's no way in which the response to that is, yes, we're gonna subjugate everyone under Islam. That is not, and then the same thing with the way that Iran policy has followed since the revolution in 1979, which is to go outside its borders and bring its revolution to everywhere that it can. And that, that, that's not a rational response to that kind of um, incident, even if the incident were accurately described, and I don't think it was. Um, I, I wanna say one thing about the Rushdie, and we should talk more about the later events as well, but you were making the point, Ankar, about how ideology is unreal to the pragmatist mindset or ideas and abstractions are unreal. And I want to connect the Rushdie incident with 
the sale of arms. I think it's called the uh, arms for Contra. It's a very complicated deal under the, the Reagan administration, but essentially it was, we're selling arms to bad people in South America, Latin America, in order to get some kind of convoluted scheme to release American hostages in Lebanon. That's how I remember. And there's this whole kind of maze of, of things that happened here. And there's other things we we're trying to do with American hostages in Lebanon too. This is under Reagan, the, the patron saint of Republicans as he's now, he's been canonized. Like this is the ideal for Republicans. And, and it's, this is, I know he said good things about in opposition to the Soviet Union. And I, I, I get that. And I, I, when I read his speeches, I think, yeah, this, this is a good that he said that. But I think it's important to get that it wasn't like Reagan's foreign policy was outstandingly good. And we should all go back to that. And I think what his policy actually reflects is some of this mentality of, well, what's the problem with dealing with Iran if we can get our people free? What's the problem with dealing with these bad people in Latin America? The, you mean their ideas matter? What's wrong with you? What, how does that even come into the picture? And I think that when you get into George H.W. Bush, who's even more on this premise, like George W.H. Bush is a sort of intellectually vacuous compared to Reagan, who I don't think was very intellectual to begin with. And when you get the Rushdie thing is, it's not only that, how could, how could we even care about free speech? It's this abstract thing. It's the, the, the worser, so the, the one element of it that I think is underappreciated is that it's coming from Iran. It's, it's ideologically motivated attack on free speech. This isn't just a bunch of people upset about a book. This is people upset because of its impact on their religious uh, um, ideology, and they're willing to kill people over that. That, that that reality has no that doesn't register, and I think the consequences of it not being taken seriously, not being understood, ripple through the coming decades. And I think it's it's a a significant part of the story for understanding 9/11 and and what happened after 9/11 because it's not like it's the last incident where free speech was uh, threatened. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Oka. One thing, and then I ask, want to ask you a question, Yaron. So on the, the Rushdie and connecting it to the libertarians, the you cannot paint, I mean, you can, but it would not be true to paint the Rushdie affair as like, this is interference in their countries and in the Middle East. So this is a Western writer publishing for Westerners. So, and they put a bounty on his head and say that we don't permit this. And if you guys permit this, we're gonna assassinate you and your publishers and people involved. And to view that as, oh, if we would just get out of the Middle East and so something like this wouldn't happen. It's again, the libertarians, there's a real strain that is, you could put it pragmatist, but it's really anti-ideology. They're against the idea that ideas matter. And so when you're, along with saying there's a vested interest, they have a vested interest in trying to show that ideas are irrelevant. And so their ideology, and so I know it's all about economics and you're interfering with what they're trying to do and they love freedom and, you, and you're here occupiers and, and, and that's all, I mean, it, it's BS. So to and, what extent is that the same as the left? Because that sounds almost Marxist, right? It's all economics and it's all stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, this in significant part, not in whole, but in significant part comes from Rothbard. And he, in his later years, um, I mean, maybe not just later years, but is um, enamored in various ways of left, the left. 
and he's anti-American in the way the left is. And the, I mean, you get now left libertarians and so on, but he's one of the people pushing that kind of alliance. And it's not an accident that, that, that there's real ideological similarities between Rothbard and Marxist and sort of the new left as well. But so that argument, you could, you could translate it to Israel and say, if Israel would just leave people alone, the rest of the, their neighbors would leave them alone. And like, what's the response to that? <laughs> well, I mean, first, I think that's exactly what they say, right? So this is not hypothetical. That's exactly what the left and many libertarians actually say about Israel. It's all Israel's fault. And if only they left alone. And, and, and of course, uh, one of the reasons Israel has no, almost no left, capital L left, um, particularly when it comes to kind of foreign policy, military issues, is because nobody in Israel believes that, right? I mean, even the leftists in Israel realize that you can't just roll over, right? Um, so the, 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 the whole political spectrum in Israel when it comes to defense, to the extent that there's a political spectrum, right? It starts in the center, it goes right. There's no complete appeasement. Let's just lay down everything. There's one small political party that's affiliated with that. Everything else is run by generals who are very real and, and, uh, and, and realistic. But yeah, there's, there is this... Um, there is the sense on the left and in the libertarian movement that it's everything's America's fault. And I think it's motivated by the fact that America is actually, relatively speaking, a successful country. And therefore flies in the face of the idea that anarchy is the only solution. That is, life is too good. They have to, in a sense, undermine it constantly in order to, uh, in order to present this anarchist alternative. Uh, but uh, there is a real hatred of America, and, and motivated by this, this motivated by a variety of different reasons. But uh, it's shocking, and it was certainly shocking at 9/11 to see how many people. I mean, the names we were called by the libertarians. Uh, I mean, they were worse than the leftists, worse than anybody in terms of attacking the Einstein Institute with regard to what we were proposing, uh, the action being taken. I think it's worth just saying something, to, to, if we can rewind to the, the first few days and months after 9-11. One thing that stunned me was there were prominent intellectuals on what you would call the left, who call themselves on the left, who came out and, and effectively said, yeah, we had it coming. And it wasn't exactly the Ron Paul perspective, but it was very similar. And there were, it was not a, a single, it wasn't one or two, it was a chorus. And there was enough of them that you could say, this is a really disgusting perspective. And I think, I think that the, I read that as this, there was a, a, a shared aim here of let this takes America down a few notches. And they were sad. They were happy about that. And in that sense, it was a way for them to gloat at America's suffering or the suffering of Americans. And I wonder about people who have this attitude, who, who think of themselves as on the side of liberty. Mm -hmm. Why do you care about liberty? Why do you care about freedom? Is it because, you know, it, how does that integrate with you want to see America brought down? I mean, if there's one place where liberty actually still exists in a significant degree, you need to think about how this fits together with your view. Um, and just one other, just like a footnote, if I'm allowed to do that on radio show. <laughs> footnote is, 
I mean, I'm critical of the view. I, I don't. I reject the view that American foreign policy is the primary or even main explanation for what the Islamists are doing. I think the main explanation is what we've been saying. It's an ideologically driven movement rooted in Islam with certain political aims. But I want to just make clear, it's not as if American foreign policy was smart or intelligible or coherent. And I think it's important. Part of what I've been talking about in, when we were tracing the road to 9-11 and, and the incoherence and the pragmatism of American policy, all of that is we're highly critical of American foreign policy. If you think about Dr. Peikoff's essay that, was, that you, were, you mentioned, we should be good to talk a bit more about that. It starts with 50 years of American appeasement. And in the first few paragraphs in the Middle East have led to this. And the first few paragraphs are about how this is a long-standing problem that American foreign policy is a policy in scare quotes. It is not really coherent. You can't really say that there's uh, clear goals or priorities or values here. Uh, so I think there is a problem with American foreign policy, but it's not the one that you hear from libertarians yeah, or from nihilist leftists. It's, yeah. it's that it's not coherent. It's not concerned with America's actual self-interest. Yes. And it's, there's a vacuum where there should be some conception of that. So I just want to, that's a long footnote. But Yeah, and, and, and to the extent that we're talking about the road to 9-11, I mean, Leonard Peikoff, uh, when he starts 50 years of appeasement, is, is really in the Middle East referring back to um, the deals we made with the Saudis to protect them at all costs, really going back to World War II. And then the fact that we did nothing as Iran and then Saudi Arabia, and then the rest of the of the Muslim world or the, the Middle East uh, nationalized, which is another word for saying, you know, stole uh, the property rights of American and, and uh, other Western countries, uh, oil. Uh, and, and, and the fact, and if you really want a key event around that, I've talked about this on the show in the past, in 1956 Suez Canal crisis, where it was uh, the Eisenhower administration, right? The French and the British, were the tough guys, and it's the Eisenhower administration that forced them to retreat uh, and um, and and succumb to uh, NASA's nationalizing nationalization of the Swiss Canal, with the hope again, this goes to the pragmatism Anko was talking about, with the hope that that would convince NASA to to be a, a friend of the United States, and of course, within six months, he he cuts a deal with the Soviet Union. To arm him and to build the 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 the, the big dam and to to become and and he becomes a satellite basically of the of the Soviets. So it, it backfires uh, in in the face of the Eisenhower administration almost immediately. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath because we've gone a, 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 a an hour and we haven't even talked about what happens after. Yeah. So can I just give us yep. a summary sure. of? The, sure. I mean, part of the reason sure. we've been talking a lot about the the lead up to nine yep. eleven is that if you have um, an awareness of what ideologies mean, how they inspire people, what it mean, looks like to oppose them and what it looks like to appease them, that 9-11 that was not foreseeable is like, completely wrong. It was, you could see the growing appeasement mm -hmm. going on that you should have been expecting an attack um, and a, an escalating attack, because that's what the history actually shows. If you can think of it in an integrated way, driven by ideological factors. So part of what, for kind of our perspective at ARI was a little startled. It was the kind of paralysis and it's like, who can make any sense of this? 
And it should have been, and certainly from our leading um, thinkers and government officials, and so from the leadership of the country, it should have said, been, yeah, this we could see this coming. And the fact that nobody could indicated such an ideological bankruptcy. So I think part of the reason at ARI that we focused a lot on this is the awareness that nobody is going to say anything halfway decent on this because they don't know and don't really want to think clearly about what is going on. And they're taking it as like this is an attack out of the blue, which is not true at all. Well, and, and of course, that the same philosophical premises that were at the heart of them not seeing it led to the kind of response that, that we got. That is, the response was, was the, the continuation. There was nothing, in a sense, learned. It wasn't like on 9-11. You could somewhat forgive them if on 9-11 they said, okay, God, we screwed up. We should have seen, okay, there's an ideology here. Here's what it's about. And uh, given this ideology, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to fight for freedom and liberty. And But no, the same ideology that drove them not to see it drove them to mishandle everything that came out uh, after 9-11. So um, right after, uh, you know, we could already, and, and again, I remember, I can't remember exactly when uh, Leonard Peeves' article came out. I think it was two or three weeks. I think it was three weeks after 9-11. It was published. It was written, I think, uh, a week, a week and a half uh, after 9-11. I'll just mention the Wall Street Journal turned it down. They thought it was too provocative, even for a paid uh, four-page ad, and it's funny, the Wall Street Journal, which you think of as relatively sane uh, publication, wouldn't carry the four-page ad, but the New York Times and the Washington Post would. Um, and uh, uh, the editorial page in the Wall Street Journal was very upset. They tried to get it, uh, ad, they tried to get it published, uh, but, uh, and they convinced the paper to say, okay, we'll take it. But then they came back with terms that were just, they wouldn't give us the nonprofit discount. They they wanted a huge, so they made it clear that they do not want this published and they they put any roadblocks they could uh, in our way. Whereas the New York Times and the Washington Post, surprisingly, shockingly, to some extent, um, were very easy to work with. And we got, we got it published in both of those newspapers. I think it's October 2nd that it was published. October 2nd, so it's it's a three, three and a half weeks afterwards. Uh, it was it was written about two weeks after. Um, I, you know, it was written over uh, the editing, at least. I remember uh, working with Leonard on the editing, um, uh, kind of an overnight thing. It was, a, it was really done very, very quickly. And, uh, but one of the reasons it was written, one of the reasons um, uh, we went into action is because so as you said, we identified that they they weren't getting it. They didn't see the cause. Nobody was explaining where it came from. And it, what is it about the response in the early days led us to, to think that the response going forward, that they weren't, they weren't getting it. That is that the response going forward was gonna be as weak as the responses leading up to this. Elon. I mean, you guys were more the decision makers at the time than I was, but I, I think for me, one of the clues was, I think it was within a day or two, there was a prayer breakfast that Bush hosted and he brought in a whole bunch of imams. And it wasn't just this incident. And it was a, a, a strident theme in Bush's statements right after 
was this these people are evil but they have nothing to do with islam this yeah. they hijacked a noble religion they're distorting a great religion um islam is every, a religion of peace I exactly mean, and at the joint in front of congress the joint session in front of congress where this was going to be a declaration of war this was this is the big moment this is fdr you know declaring what going after world war ii and and islam is a religion of peace is uh, there's an axis of evil, but it has nothing to do with ideology. And of course, what North Korea had to do with the axis of evil was completely bewildering. And the fact that Saudi Arabia wasn't named as one of the countries, of course. Well, let's name the countries. So it was it was North Korea, yep. Iraq, yep. and Iran. The yep. only one that's a candidate that would give you any reason to think there's some understanding here is Iran. Yep. But that's the one they dropped. And then the axis of evil goes away altogether and we're left with Iraq. And it, and it was the, that the level of confusion, I think, or maybe confusion is too charitable, but there was a... Yeah, was go a, ahead, Anko, one second, yeah. Elon. I was going to say, that came a little later. That was more, it, it's not good, but it was more clear than what, it, that started was terrorists. Yes. And... Um, who have hijacked a religion, whatever that, like, what does it mean you've hijacked a religion? But it was, don't you dare, I mean, what the feeling was, was don't you dare link this to religion and faith. And so that's worse than pragmatism. Yeah, I, I mean, think there's one statement, sorry, I think there's one statement where, I hope I, I hope I'm attributing this correctly, but the, the one of the statements I remember was, um, People like this have no place in any faith. And maybe this was later, maybe this was Obama, but it was all of a piece. There was just this whole, uh, uh, I mean, it's ahistorical to think that religion has nothing to do with violence. Mm -hmm. And let alone when you, and it wasn't long after you, we learned a bit about who these people were in the plains and what they said about what they were trying to do. So it was in complete defiance of the evidence that was being pieced together, what these people were doing, what they were planning to say as they rammed into the buildings, they left their will and testament, and it was all from top to bottom. I'm going to meet. I'm going to go to heaven for this. This is in the path of Allah, and you. There was an absurd situation where the the president of the United States is arguing with with the rest of the world that he understands Islam and the best way to interpret it better than anybody else, and he's the authority on this issue. Uh, and that whatever else you say, don't talk about religion. And, and I, I think Ankar's put it really well because it's, it wasn't, I think it came from, it was rooted in some ways in the fact that Bush himself was religious. And I think it, just as the pragmatists can't think that ideas matter in any significant way, because for him, they don't. I think there was a kind of projection of, well, my religion doesn't do this. Nobody's religion could possibly do this, which again, it's, it's, com it's completely detached from the facts. So, Uncle, you said it was worse than pragmatism. In what sense? So what is it if it's worse than pragmatism? A, a pragmatist, when you're really dealing with a pragmatist, he's just oblivious because his whole way of functioning is abstract ideas are useless. Maybe you pick one up and then you pick another one. And he projects that out, that everybody's going to be like this. So when he's tr dealing with the CIA, dealing with the the resistance in Afghanistan, they can't take seriously that this is, they're committed to this ideology. They have long-term goals that are defined by their ideology. They can wait five, 10, 
20 years to plan an attack. And so that is, you know, you just, a, a pragmatist is short range. And so, so that whole way of function, it's just, he's oblivious to it. But here it was, there's an awareness of that there's a connection to Islam that we have to whitewash. We have to whitewash that it has any religious, because it's, as, as Alon said, it's in defiance of the evidence. So it's, you have so much evidence that this is connected to Islam. So we have to go out of our way and say, oh no, don't think that. You might think that, but you're wrong. They've hijacked a religion. All religions are religions of peace, just like it. And it, that is, now you're not a pragmatist because you're not, it's a pragmatist can't take it seriously. This is a person who's taking religion seriously and trying to whitewash it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the other two elements that, so what we saw that what is going to cripple our response and, and cripple is unfortunately generous, like it, we're gonna have a suicidal response is, so it's that the religion is gonna be whitewashed and the connection of, of these people willing to die and take orders and submit. And so that is going to be, and we, I mean, you saw it as Alon said, I mean, basically the day after 9-11, that this starting, and then it's treating them as terrorists. So not seeing the, the role that states play and governments play in this. So the, the title of Leonard's article or ad that is end states who sponsor terrorism. So it's connecting, they're not these isolated people who don't have an ideology that is being armed and spread by government. So there, there was that, and then there's the altruism that it was clear from very early on. I mean, one of the first things I wrote was about innocence in war. Yep. It will be, you cannot go to war, you cannot fight back because innocent people are gonna be caught in the crossfire. And how dare you do that? Your, your life, self-interest, self-defense has to be subordinate to people, their needs and so on. Who are you to assert yourself? And it was like that, combination of things you could see very early on. And I think what we um, did was to push back and fight the, at least those three ideas that were kind of governing the way people were thinking. So repeat the three quickly. Um, that going to whitewash the connection to religion. You're going to try to sever the connection between the terrorists and governments and states that what we're facing is states that we have to put an end to. And that altruism, if the more you take altruism seriously, the more self-defense, actual self-defense is taken off the table. So what, so um, why states, right? So there's the whole, I mean, you hear, we heard this a lot in terms of criticism of opposition early on in, in the essay. Why states? I mean, ultimately this is a, uh, a, a organization that wasn't linked to any state, Al-Qaeda. Um, it's an ideology that is spread over lots of different places and lots of little organizations all over the place. What are you going to go to war on every organization that holds this ideology? Um, what is what is the connection of the states and to what extent is that connection still exist today? That is because we still haven't dealt with any states that hold this ideology. I mean, I'll, I'll say a little bit. You guys might want to say more, but it. Um, I mean, it's a complete fantasy to think that it wasn't connected to states. What you see the rise of it is, is with Iran. And 
an ideology that's seeking political power, what that means is that they gain control of territory and of states. I mean, that's what it was in sweeping into Iran. And the, the um, Al-Qaeda, to get to the kind of power that it has, that it wasn't in bed with the Taliban in Afghanistan. That, again, is a fantasy to think that. Um, and part of our whole, I mean, I think basically the war was lost in a few months after 9-11, that what happened in Afghanistan with the Taliban, that was, there was it was very hard to recover from that. Um, and certainly it telegraphed what was going to happen. Yep. So and 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 I mean thinking of Saudi Arabia as spreading this ideology. It's so there is such a thing as terrorist groups that you also have to take out, but you're facing a different level of threat when it is connected to a government, the resources a government has, the way the government can um, I mean, what basically Iran does is simultaneously works with them and tries to distance that. Oh, these are just groups that are independently. Don't blame us for this and so on. And we, I mean, they're proxy soldiers in that sense. And they have to be conceptualized as proxy soldiers. Um, and the, the less you do that, you treat it as like, these are criminal gang, like you're dealing with the mafia and then it courts and so on. That's the, the appropriate way of dealing with the mafia. But we're not, that is not what you're facing. And and we still don't know to this day, I think, the full extent of the, the Saudi involvement in this. Certainly we know that the Saudis funded all the schools that trained these people in, in Pakistan and, and all over the world, really, uh, including the United States itself. Uh, they, they fund the preachers who are the radicals, who are the, the, the most extreme of the, of the preachers advocating for these ideas. They funded the Taliban. They funded Al-Qaeda through a variety of charities. Again, the links to the royal family might not be quite drawn out. We don't have the map exactly of who did what, but we know Saudi intelligence. Uh, we know um, a variety of different charities, the Kuwaitis, the, the Gulf Oil, little Emirates uh, have all been funded these kind of movements. And yet, not only is, is Saudi Arabia and, the Emir and, and these Emirates not an enemy of the United States, certainly not after 9-11, certainly not before 9-11, but also after 9-11, they're our best friends. I mean, and, and they're treated that way. The only plane to fly in the week after 9-11 was, was a plane leaving New York to Saudi Arabia carrying members of the royal family who happened to be in America at the time and were allowed to return to Saudi Arabia. The Bush administration was, and you saw Trump dancing with them and you see Biden uh, uh, being extraordinarily nice to them. The Saudis are considered our best friends in spite of all the evidence. I think one other country to mention here is Pakistan. Yes. So I think absent Pakistan's, uh, I forget what they call the secret uh, state police institute. ISS, this, I think. Yeah, I forget what it stands for. The, with absent their involvement in the, in, in the years when the Taliban was in power, enabling them and uh, supporting them. And then since the 9-11 attacks, when... George Bush went to Pakistan and said, hey, be our ally. Here's a bunch of money. Help us fight these bad guys. And the Pakistani regime said, sure, we'll take the money. And they did exactly the opposite. They continued supporting them, enabling them, 
to the point where for up to uh, upwards of a decade, it was known that if you wanted to chat and have an interview with one of the Taliban leaders, you go to Pakistan where they, they have known meeting houses, they walk around free. And of course we know, and I'm sure the story will have to come out in, in the years ahead, Osama bin Laden's compound was in Pakistan. It, it's, we, we'll need to know a bit more about that, but that that is really weird and suspicious. So I think it's a really important perspective that the states are central to this movement. It is, it is really important. And it's not like, I mean, it, it's really part of seeing how this is ideas driven and that what unites these regimes with these groups is the common ground is what they're trying to do is that it's they're interested in the same kind of vision to to some extent i think but a lot of what drives them a lot of what motivates them certainly and i think in the case of pakistan is our weakness so i think the pakistanis many people in pakistan are not interested in the global jihadi movement they're not they they, they're afraid of their own jihadis in pakistan Mm -hmm. they know the u.s won't do anything indeed People don't remember this, but the U.S. was negotiating with Pakistan. Oh, could you help us with the Taliban? We'll sell you F-16s. And, and, you know, we sold them weapons. We were selling Pakistan weapons post 9-11, even as they were hiding much of the Taliban and much of Al-Qaeda were hiding in Pakistan. But but they're so they view the United States as such a pathetic actor, so weak, uh, so ill-informed uh, that they're willing, they're willing easily, they'd rather, uh, you know, be blackmailed by their own Islamists than, than, and stand up to America because America is not a threat to them. They fear us uh, not. If, if, if we were tough, none of these countries would do this. The, the political establishments, they care too much about their own survival and too little about ideology. I think they're pragmatists too, to some extent, that, um, that none of this would happen, but they know we will do nothing. They know they can get away with murder, which is exactly what they get away with. By the way, um, I know you guys are asking a lot of questions. Uh, I promise we will get to them soon. Um, and I don't know, Ilan, and your side, yeah. you get a lot of questions, but I have. We have a lot of questions and a lot of Super Chat donations to the Institute, so we, we thank you for that. Yeah, so we have a lot of uh, Super Chat questions here. So we're, we're going to get to them. I'll, I'll prioritize them based on the amount. Um, in, in, in a few minutes, we'll get to those. This is going to be a long show, as you can see. So it's, it's going to be a little while. Yaron, I, I don't know where you want to bring this up. I hope we can talk a bit about the kind of flack that the Institute received. Because Ankar put it, you know, we knew that we had to do something. And I, but I think we got a lot of it. And I think it's worth talking about what that, some of what that was and what history has shown <laughs> in response. To that. And the thing I'm thinking of is there was, definitely a view and not only among objectives, I think it was just culture wide view and particularly critics of George W. Bush who thought of him as he's really tough. He's a cowboy. He's maverick. He's going to do things on his own and he's going to, you know, thumb his nose at the UN and, and all sorts of things like that. Maybe we can come back to that at some point. No, I think it's a good transition, not so much about our critics, but about George Bush's response, because I think he was viewed as a cowboy. I mean, a, in Europe, they viewed him as a cowboy because whatever he did, they thought was too much. Um, and to some extent, you could argue it was too much of the wrong thing, right? It's, it's um, uh, and we can talk about what our response, we argued the response should have been, which I think would have been in some way smaller, but but more focused and, and more more intense, but more focused, whereas his was broader and, and less focused. 
I think there are a lot of places where we can take this. I mean, um, the rise of, uh, you know, the, the, the growth of the state in the United States, right? The, the growth of government and, and the growth of government intervention in our lives, through, whether it's the TSA or whether it's the NSA, as, as, uh, as uh, Snowden has, you know, informed us, nobody seems to care. Uh, but but the NSA's activity post 9/11, but but uh, the TSA security and and the hassle that we go through constantly. But let's focus really on quick contrast, if we can do it in in kind of big chunks of the response Bush had and what we thought the response should have been. Um, and then then I want to talk a little bit about the flack and a little bit about kind of the, 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 the people who oppose our view of what should have been done. I don't know who wants to take that. One of you. Uh, well, I mean, I'll say a couple yeah. of things at the outset. So uh, our view of the response, so part of it articulated by Leonard's um, full page ad is that you have to think of this as ideological it's 50 years of appeasement, but that means 50 years of emboldening them, of giving them courage and reason to think their cause will succeed. That given that, you have to end the state that is the major inspiration, which is Iran. Yep. And I think, and you, I would add to that Afghanistan, because it, they were harboring bin Laden and the attack. So if, the response had been, we're going to take out the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, and then we're going to remove um, the Islamic totalitarians in Iran from power. That would have, it would have, and if that was the response in 2001, so remember the Iraq war starts 2003. If that had been the response and, and, and some articulation of why, that like we've empowered and enabled Iran for 20 plus years since the Iran, uh, since them taking the embassies, we've empowered them, we've given them cause to think that their, their program can succeed. We are reversing course and putting an end to this. Um, and the, so we weren't objecting to Bush going it alone or build, like bypassing the UN and building, I think he called it a coalition of the willing or something like that. But it was, but what are you willing to do? And what he was not willing to do was talk. Um, so th this is part of why I objected to the axis of evil. He was not talking about Iran as evil. He was indeed inviting Iran into the coalition. Yes, I remember that. Um, so it was complete whitewashing of the role of religion. So you can't, basically you can't do anything good if you're not going to oppose the very cause and inspiration of this. And if you're gonna invite them into your coalition to fight, I mean, so, I mean, to, I can't convey how bad I think Bush is. Um, and it, I mean, he was called a war criminal. And I think that, but not for the reasons again, that people articulate, it's that it is, he had to put America's interests first and he did not and yep. he killed soldiers and so on for no reason. That is it, people who signed, we didn't talk about, but a lot of people signed up after 9-11 as yep. I will fight for my country. 
And our leadership did not put them in a position to actually fight for our country. And that is criminal to do that. Well, in two dimensions, they fought the wrong wars in the wrong places. And they were given rules of engagement that basically made them less important than the, the, the population in the countries they were fighting. And, and if you think about Afghanistan, I mean, that war could have been done in a couple of weeks. It, it, we had, there were several times Bin Laden in the crosshair. Uh, we, we left the, most of the fighting to the Northern Alliance. We didn't put troops on the ground in Boa Boa, but he shouldn't even have gotten to Boa Boa. We knew exactly where he was before that. And we were afraid of civilian casualties. It goes back to the altruism and the, and the rules of engagement. And, and the Taliban, when did we kill Mullah Omar? I think it was it was in 2013 or something. I mean, it was well it was well over 10 years after 9/11. Yet we knew exactly where they were living. We knew exactly where the yeah. presidential palace was in Kabul. We knew all those things. We refused to bomb them. We refused to take we them. We negotiated out. with them. Yes. So, and if you contrast that to, they put an um, a price on Rushdie's head and say we're going to assassinate him. And what had to happen after 9-11 is tell the Taliban, you've got two hours to hand over bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda. And if you don't, that's it. And then it, it, I mean, we knew where they were. Yep. You could surround them and kill them. Yep. And that is what he was unwilling to, so that we dispersed them meant they're going to regroup and come back to attack. And, and that was completely foreseeable. Absolutely. And all the, all the terrorism that happened afterwards, the Al-Qaeda continuing the the rise of the muslim brotherhood across the middle east isis in iraq if you remember and ultimately in syria the the uh, all of that is due to the fact that they were never crushed right there in afghanistan and then that we didn't go to iran and again iran should not have been that difficult people think oh the iranian military is so scary um <laughs> we wiped out the iraqis in days and they uh, fought a stalemate for seven years between iraq and iran for seven years. So this is a military that couldn't defeat Iraq when we had defeated them in days. And, and not to mention the fact, I, you know, I think at the time, you, if, if you really want to destroy the, ideo- the, the ideology of source, you could have done so much of it from the air um, and, uh, and, 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 and put very, very limited resources on the ground. But none of that happened. Instead, it was appeasement and futile efforts and a war in Iraq which we kind of supported, never really, but there was this idea of doing something was better than nothing. Not sure if I... Before before we jump to that, I I just think it's worth clarifying that um, the, what happened in Afghanistan was initially to focus on the Taliban and bin Laden, but that very quickly, as you mentioned, there was this dispersal and then it became very rapidly, it became about rebuilding Afghanistan, reconstruction, nation building, which is this term that you hear thrown around. And it really just did change. It, it gave focus to what was really unfocused. And it meant that the, the soldiers and the troops on the ground were now put on missions that we're going to open a printing factory. We're going to create this, build, reopen these uh, libraries and build things. And, and then when with Iraq, there was even less clarity about why to go. Um, and, and I think on Iraq, it, it, my the way I think of it is, uh, this was the wrong war for sure. But then once you're in it, you can't pretend like you're not in a war. And I think yep. that was part of what we, I think we were arguing that 
you at least have to accomplish something that serves American interests and protects the service people in on the ground. It's not an endorsement of going to Iraq. I think we, we were vehemently against that. But I think it's there is this context that you can't put people in harm's way and then tell them, no, don't, don't do anything. Go go rebuild this factory, open up the museums and make sure there's ballot boxes that you can protect. Well, they have a constitution that in, in, entrenches Islam in the you know, again, this complete oblivious to the to the to the motivation of the people who attacked us. Allow the Iraqis to write a constitution under your watch that basically, you know, makes it an Islamist country and turns it from a relatively secular one to an Islamic one um, and entrenches the Islamic forces and entrenches the influence of Iran. So it all really goes back to Iran. And, and indeed, one of the issues right now with Afghanistan is the extent to which Iran has influenced now from Afghanistan to Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon. And, and if you look 20 years later, Iran has won. It, it, it's the victor of the entire thing. Now they're incompetent and they're poor and, and their own ideology is self-defeating. But we've done everything to help them. <laughs> and we've done everything to make it possible for them to now have this empire almost, uh, Yemen, you know, south of Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia fuels its so-called uh, and, uh, and 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 the, the the Iranians now are stronger in that sense than they've ever been before. They're more influential than they've ever been before, and to a large extent, at the cost and expense of American lives, of of uh, not just American lives in 9/11, but all the American soldiers, the five six thousand soldiers that have died, the tens of thousands that have been maimed. Uh, that 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 have suffered, and just and just the, the the hundreds of thousands that have been in combat for for nothing. At the end of the day, for for nothing, worse than nothing, because as I said, we've we've enhanced and emboldened uh, the Iranians. I mean, that's really the outcome of the whole thing: is that the Islamists are stronger than ever. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, this uh, the response to our positioning. And then we should get to the questions because otherwise uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go for hours and hours. So um, we were we were immediately attacked again from all sides. Really, I, I remember uh, obviously the libertarians thought we were or I was in particular a bloodthirsty uh, you know uh, uh, homicidal maniac. I, I think that's a direct quote from one of the essays. Um, the, the left hated us. The conservatives didn't like us because we were critical of George Bush. And uh, if you were critical of George Bush, it very much reminds me, you know, I should have seen the current tribalism among, among the right. It probably has always existed. I just never saw it. But in those days, it was, how can, how can you be critical of Bush? It makes you be like the left. It may, and I was trying to say, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, in a sense, in those days, I thought of it. I'm to the right of Bush. Right? And they couldn't comprehend that, right? And, and again, it goes to the tribalism of the right and the left, that they, you either were on the left or on the right, and the right was George Bush, so the right is Donald Trump. And you can't criticize them, otherwise you're not part of the, part of the, the right group, you're, you're, you're helping the other group. Um, and we were, so we criticized by, by everybody out there. Ankar, maybe, what, what do you think the essence of the criticism was? What's, where is it coming from? What is it that he responded in our message? What is it that they found so hateful in what we were trying to do? The basic issue, I think, is that what we were advocating is national self-interest. Yep. Um, so putting it in more objectivist terms, 
that it we were advocating that we need to be selfish. And so it we need to put our freedom, lives and interests first, and then a conception of what that means of what that looks like. And it flies in the face of everybody's altruism. So the and it's altruism is shared by basically everybody. So it, the left are altruists, the, who will be put on the left, who will be put on the right are altruists. Religionists are certainly altruists. Everybody thinks that there is something wrong with self-assertion. And here, the um, war means killing people. It is not a pleasant thing. It's why you want to avoid war. And the way to avoid war is not to appease and project that we're impotent and so and so the, the idea that it, it's like our foreign policy was the problem that we were too aggressive is bizarre it's precisely that we projected weakness for so long that invited attack and the only when that happens the only way to reverse it is to actually fight i mean so ayn rand's view of the the iranian taking the embassies is that if we didn't march, I mean, this is basically a words. If we didn't march the next day, there's nothing we can do now and we won't be able to live it down for decades. And she was right about that because the, when you're dealing with, I mean, if you put it in kind of a uh, much narrower uh, field of vision, if you're dealing with a bully, if you don't stand up and, and at some point fight back, you can, you're you're doomed, and so it here. What self-interest required once we're attacked in the way that we were at 9/11 required a military response where we kill people, and there's going to be innocent people killed in that, and that is that we were attacked as barbarians and bloodthirsty and so on. That's the because in this circumstance, what it doesn't normally require this. But in this circumstance, what it required is a real military response. As we've argued, and we, and we argued at the time, it could have been delimited. But the idea that people in Afghanistan and Iran wouldn't have died, that's not true. Um, and it is to face that and to face that with, we are morally entitled to do this. Mm -hmm. um, everybody's morality pushes against that. And a lot of the work that we did following 9-11 was focused on that moral issue and the issue of applying self-interest uh, uh, to it. I think one of the most important talks was a talk by Leonard, uh, American, Amer Americans versus America, um, where in a sense he contrasts the response of Americans after 9-11. They waved flags, but it was an empty. It was empty because it wasn't representative of a true American sense of life and a true American um, um, self-esteem. And he contrasted it with the response to, to Pearl Harbor. And, and uh, they, they knew exactly what was needed and they were willing to do what was needed. And, and uh, none of that existed. Why is that? What happened between, I know we're going backwards, but what happened between to America, between, nine, between Pearl Harbor and 9-11 that made the response so weak and, and altruistic and, uh, you know, pathetic. You want to say something on this, Alon? Why don't you start? Um, so I would say it's, it's 
the ideology that has been dominant in America for now 120, 150 years, but that means it has growing uh, negative consequences. So I already think in um, World War II that it, it's not as though what America was thinking about and the American people uh, as a whole, I think there was much more of a component than there is today. But thinking of, uh, really thinking about what's in America's self-interest, what it's required, Ayn Rand was of the view, which I agree with, that at that time, what it were required is arming and staying out of the conflict and yep. let Japan and Russia and Germany tear each other apart and tear apart the people who appease them. And, and unfortunately, which was much of Europe at the time. But so we should arm, but we don't have to be involved in the conflict. And she thought, and Leonard thinks this as well, too, that the Roosevelt administration maneuvered us into getting into the conflict and then mm -hmm. participating in the war. But what is true? So World War II, I don't think, was a war of national self-interest. I don't think the outcome was good. Um, the Nazis were defeated, but communism rose and we and we enabled it to rise. And we have no idea what Stalin represented. And we were friends with Stalin and Uncle Joe. And and so you can be have a too rosy view. But what I think is true, that once we were at war, it is we prioritized American lives. Yep. And we did not give as a whole self crippling battlefield instructions and so on. And you can't, it, I don't think you could even entertain the idea that we would drop atomic bombs now, whereas we did it to end the conflict with Japan. And knowing it's going to kill a lot of innocent Japanese, it's going to kill a lot of Japanese who are not innocent, but they're part of the war machine. And it was part of what it was required to bring Japan to its knees. And yep. that is uh, in part, uh, it's, I mean, part a conscious decision, but it's in part a issue of a sense of life that we're at war and what was required is we have to preserve our lives, our soldiers. And if it means killing tens of thousands of the enemy and of people in enemy country, we will have to do it. It's not like we want to drop bombs. If they had surrendered, it's not, we wouldn't have dropped the bombs, but if they don't surrender, and this saves American lives, they would do it. And that is that, um, I mean, we from World War II to 9-11 is another 50 plus years mm -hmm. and of an ideology that's pushing that, uh, one of the ways that Ayn Rand put it, which I think is a useful way to think of it, is the intellectuals basically after the Civil War in America are anti-American. Yep. So they're in various ways undermining American self-esteem. And that has growing consequences. And it's, uh, and I think part of what Leonard was talking about is from World War II to now, we've had 50 more years of intellectuals in America who are anti-American teaching in our universities and so on. And that has an effect on the populace. I mean, e even in World War II, I mean, we know about the atomic bombs, but people don't know that before those were dropped, we firebombed every Japanese city killing hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, we, we flattened Dresden, but every German city was basically flattened during the war. Um, and, and often it was to break the will. It wasn't yeah. just trying to blow up factories. It was clearly to break the will. Suddenly Churchill held the view that you need to break the will of the Germans and, uh, and, and executed on it. And nobody batted an eye. Oh, I'm sure some intellectuals batted eyes. 
but there was no impact on the Americans. Americans wanted to defend themselves and they knew they had to crush their enemy. But we did, suddenly towards the end of the war uh, in Europe, um, completely appease the communists, hand over Eastern Europe to them, uh, uh, prevent our generals from occupying territory in Eastern Europe because FDR basically had given Eastern Europe to the Soviets and, and institution, you know, basically committed ourselves to supporting a, the enslavement of, I don't know, 100 million Europeans under communism for, for what lasted, uh, uh, what lasted uh, a long time. Um, all right, let's, um, let's take some questions because they are accumulating and, um, and uh, I, don't wanna, I don't want us to be going until uh, 6 p.m. tonight. Elan, uh, uh, do you have yours organized? Yeah, there okay. are uh, four, three or four questions on our end. Oh, so I've got, I've got twenty. <laughs> okay, at least, at least twenty. All right, so we're going to try to do short answers because these are uh, some of them are pretty deep questions, uh, but they are there are a lot of them. All right, I'm going to prioritize based on the amount of money you guys put on. So let me start with Adam, who put fifty dollars. Uh, one of my MSIS plus MBA alumni tried to park at the World Trade Center that morning, 9-11, but was blocked. Apparently, the FBI thought of a repetition of the 1993 blast. Um, the next day, a U.S. drone could have killed Mullah Omar, but the lawyers blocked it, which is all true. A drone could have killed, a plane could have killed Bin Laden, and the lawyers blocked that as well. What is wrong with how they think? <laughs> Everything. Um, you want well, to jump just, in? just yeah. the fact that you've got lawyers involved in yes. this is part of it that it was still being treated as this is a law enforcement issue, not a military issue. Now, we even now have lawyers in our military, and so, but that's a consequence of altruism. It's what war is about is self-defense, like a, a real conception of proper conception of war is about self-defense. And according to altruism, self-defense is immoral so that you have lawyers and so on. Like, are you really allowed to do this immoral thing and that immoral thing? And, and it has to be supervised like that. And we can't go too far because there's some awareness. Yeah, I guess. I mean, this is the moral practical. To be practical, you have to kill some people. Morally, that's abomination. So we'll have lawyers parsing everything. And so that's part of the, the, what the whole environment was in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and immediately after 9-11 and before 9-11. I mean, in Iraq and certainly in Afghanistan, they had uh, lawyers with their Marines and and telling them what they could could. There's a, I mean, a depressing movie, but I think a must see if if you want to really understand how bad this was. It's called The Outpost. It's about an outpost. I don't know if you've seen it, Ilan or Ankar, but it's it's definitely worth seeing. Heart wrenching, uh, brings tears to your eyes, and you want to kill somebody, particularly our political and and military leaders who made this possible, but it's about an outpost in, in Afghanistan and it goes through the rules of engagement they were living under, the impossibility of this situation, how they were just dying and nobody cared. And, and the whole, it, it's suspenseful and there's some good action scenes, but generally it's a, it's a massive condemnation of the way that war was practiced. And this lawyer thing was exactly that. And, and thinking you're fighting the last war is always, is unfortunately a problem. Um, uh, you know, people, uh, it's, 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 I think partly it's the pragmatism. They can't really imagine 
the enemy evolving and 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 thinking in more broader and being more ambitious and doing bigger things. They're very concrete bound. Oh, they drove a truck into the parking lot of the World Trade Center. That's what they'll do next time. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very concrete bound mentality. And unfortunately, if you watched, there was a book written about the lead up and the, the miscommunications between the CIA and the FBI. And it's just unbelievable uh, how bad things were and how close they came to stopping this and, and how they blew it. Uh, a, a lot of it, just complete irrationality. All right, Paul says, thanks for the discussion. Lovely to listen to, despite the subject. Okay, let's get to some $20 ones, and then I'll switch to Elon. Oh, Jeff has, uh, Jeff is uh, $91.10 from uh, Canadian. The whole 9-11 truth of conspiracy really disturbed me. How did you feel about how that sadly took off and went so far? Okay, so that's one. We've got a couple of others on the same topic. Let me just do all these together. Um, was 9-11 an inside job? Why or why not? Why are there so many conspiracies surrounding the collapse of the towers as well as collusion within the US government? Okay, so, so just generally, the conspiracy theories right after, how do we explain those? Uh, is there any validity to any of it? Um, what do we make of, of the conspiracy theories? Really a lot of it, some of it on the libertarians, among libertarians, the wacky right, some on the wacky left, but a lot of them. Elon, do you want to uh, have any views on this? I, I have repugnance for the conspiracy theories that have come out. And just as a phenomenon, I think it's a symptom of really poor thinking that people ad adopt these. And uh, so, I mean, that's sort of the general observation. Uh, I think that one other thing to know about conspiracy theories prior to 9-11, I think as a general phenomenon, but particularly 9-11, I think that it's, it's a view that's not seeking truth. It's, it's motivated by certain psychological and other motivations. And it, it, it's, that's why whenever you push, oh, this doesn't integrate, this doesn't make sense, this falls apart, there's always another explanation or there's a meta explanation. There's another force behind the force. And I think these, that should just, anytime you see that, you should think this person is not looking to understand what happened. They're looking to defend a certain perspective. And usually it's pretty uh, nasty or, or motivated by, I mean, I remember right after 9-11, the, the major one that was going around was the Jews didn't show up to work at, at the Twin Towers. Obviously the Jews are behind it. And it's the standard I mean, there's so many conspiracy theories involving the Jews controlling the world. And I, I don't think those things are worth refuting because they're arbitrary. And if you, but if you're dealing with an individual who's swept up in this, there are things you might want to do if they're close to you and so on. But I think as a general phenomenon, I think they're really bad thinking and they're not concerned with the truth. That, that's the essential, I would add. Anka? I'd say that, so it was disturbing and the 9-11 set in many deep ways the trend in American politics and American culture for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so, and because we live now where conspiracy theories are even much more prominent now than they were. And it's not right to call them theories, they're conspiracy fantasies. Yep. And they're akin to religion. 
So when religions start, what they look like is these kinds of fantasies. Like think of the Mormon religion um, as, a, as a modern, a fairly modern one. It, it's indistinguishable from a, these kind of conspiracy fantasies. That is possible in a more religious era, which we are now. But I would add, the more it's obvious that the mainstream is evasive, yeah, the yeah. more you open the door for these, like I've got something as good as what you guys are. So the if you start right after 9-11 and say religion has nothing to do with this, so it people can pick up that what we've got is massive evasion, that nobody is willing to actually state what is pretty obvious. Um, and in that kind of environment, you open the door for, you put it like the wacky part, you're, you've opened the door because you've got a whole um, environment and it, and it feels like it's saturated with people who don't care about the truth. And these are people who then come out of the woodwork, in fact. So I think that, I think all that's right. I think it's, I mean, it's a really interesting topic because I, I do think there's a reason why we're so we're so surrounded now by conspiracy theories everywhere and and uh and it's 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 a particular state of it says a lot about the state of the culture and and the state of the world but it really is a um conspiracies fill the void where the intellectuals have failed and and that's the point you were making Anka, about about the explanations people want explanations they might not want the truth but they want explanations they want to have some way with which in which to understand the world around them that, that they can comprehend. And, and, and conspiracy theories are always simple, right? The Jews did it, the elders of Zion, it's this, this group, that group. That's easy, right? They want to take over the world, they blew us up. I mean, that's, and it doesn't, and yeah, if you think about it a little bit, it's all stupid, but they don't think. But it really is, it, they fill that gap where the intellectual should be actually providing explanations, actually providing context. And it, when there's no leadership, no intellectual leadership, no principled uh, explanation of what's going on in the world, what you get is filling in the gaps, you get these conspiracies. And, and they gain credibility usually by pretending to be scientific or by, or by latching onto something true and then and then distorting it and perverting it. So, you know, uh, one of the one of the questions was about the the towers collapsing. Why was this such a big theory? Well, the towers collapsed straight down. They they all went went down, and and people think the towers would collapse like this. I mean, you could go over all these things. So people, you know, people don't know anything about engineering, and then somebody makes some claim about that metal can't melt at X amount of degrees. And then suddenly it becomes scientific and everybody latches on. It's, least it's an explanation. There must have been charges, uh, but it's all nonsense. And you can refute them with five minutes Googling, right? Where civil engineers actually explain to you exactly what happened and how the towers collapsed and how it's, how, how it's completely consistent where, where people explain exactly who was, who wasn't in the towers, but they're not truth seekers. They just got their simple explanation. It makes their world fit in some perverted, distorted way, and they move on. And given that the government and now intellectuals give, in a sense, even worse explanations, more evasive explanations, people, people go with the conspiracies. And I think that's only gotten worse because our leadership has gotten even more evasive. The world has gotten more complex in a sense, and a fewer, fewer explanations, the financial crisis, and now with COVID, 
people are bombarded with stuff and they don't know how to explain it and nobody gives them an explain nobody is helping them explain it so they get attracted to I the cut in to your own. I, I just want, yeah i just want to make a slightly less charitable sure. perspective on this so I, I agree that one of the motivations that go into this and what appeals to people is it's, it's an explanation in the absence of something else i and again you have to study this in more depth and different people's motivations i think differ one thing that is true today of conspiracy theories, and I think this, I don't know if this was as true with the truthers when they came out, mm-hmm. but I think today the phenomenon, so Ankar mentioned it's, it's indistinguishable from a new religion or a religion. Sure. I think one thing you see is it becomes part of people's identity to believe in this. And I think they get some sort of sense of fake sense of self-esteem. Like I'm on the inside of this be reasonable. I mean, I, I, I've, I've talked to people who, who give off this vibe. It's like, mm, you don't know that half of it. And then there's something to it. Like I'm in an elevated position and you're all scrambling for scraps from these people and telling you what they're feeding you all this bullshit. Yep. And I know the truth and the truth of the capital T and whatever it is, what is 9-11 or something else. And I think that is, it's, it ties in with the, the tribalism and, and and sort of religious thinking that goes along with that, that we have so much of today. That's exactly the, ro- the role of religion, right? Re- religion fills in that gap and gives people explanations and they don't have to think about them. So it's, it's the conspiracy theories are serving the same purpose religion did, uh, you know, 500 years ago and still does for people in terms of giving them an explanation of a world they can't comprehend and they don't want to, and they're too, they're too lazy to do it. And yeah, I mean, you're being charitable to the people who say that. I mean, I've been, I, oh, charitable maybe is not the right word, but I've been, the names I've been called because I, I've completely bought into the mainstream media and I listen to CNN all, all day and they, they have a direct link to the people who know the truth, whether it's, it turns out QAnon or, or uh, uh, what's his name, Alex Jones, the kooks, uh, the kooks running around. Uh, but they are, they have the truth and it's, it's, they, they call themselves truthers because, you know, it's a capital T truth. It's revealed truth that they have. It's, it, they don't need facts. They don't need evidence. They never do provide them other than saying, I just know we, we, we've got it inside information. We just know. And you guys are just buying into the left's, the media stuff. It's, and it's brutal. They get, they get very, <laughs> very, very angry. All right. Um, I said short answers and I'm violating my own thing. Uh, you want to take a few of the shorter questions from the, our list? Well, let me, I want to get through okay. the $20 questions and then I'll sure. shift your list and then we'll go back to this one. Um, what is the philosophical root of surrendering freedom to security? Uh, is it built in or is it a product of the politicians using fear to control us? Humans have used warlords and shaman, uh, protect us forever are we asleep are we sheep are we sheep so the philosophical root of surrendering freedom for security there's an argument to be made we're not surrendering freedom for security because you don't you lose freedom and you don't get security right yeah and i think that question is looking at it from the wrong direction it's taking it sort of as either obvious or that most people are pro-freedom and why do they give it up yeah um and it's exactly the reverse most people are not pro-free to be pro-freedom to think that my life really matters 
and I want to live it and I want the freedom to live it. And therefore I want a nation that in which that freedom to live is protected and it's it's enshrined in the laws and in the functioning of government. That's the achievement. And that what that took is a, a an awareness of the value of oneself as an individual and an individual capable of reasoning and producing, of living through thought, invention, production, trade. I can live with other people who do that if we all live in freedom and respect each other's rights. That's the achievement. And then if you ask, why, how did that come about? That came about through the enlightenment and only in a few places, even in the enlightenment, America and England, and then people learned from the achievement, the political achievements of these two countries. But like that's the rare thing in history that needs the explanation. And the explanation is the ideas and ideals, even if not fully understood or realized in the enlightenment. And then why does it wither? This is part of what um, the, you mentioned Leonard Peikoff's talk of Americans versus America. So America is, one of his formulations is the nation of the enlightenment. And it's Americans turning away from these enlightenment ideals of not thinking of themselves anymore as individuals, but as collectives in some kind of way. Um, first, it was pushed that didn't go over very much in America, thinking of yourself as a part of an economic collective of a class, like the communist, like proletariats versus bourgeoisie, that didn't fly. But the more this kind of ethnic um, view of identity that you belong to your group um, and a tribe that's part race, part um, unchosen traditions, and so like it, this, it's it's a it's a not a concept, but what they refer to as ethnicity. The more that gained um, power, and the more one thought, no, you can't be self-interested. Pursuit of happiness is wrong. You're supposed to be about the needy. And the needy, not just in America, but across the globe. So we can't assert ourselves. We have to be the, the world's nurse, basically. And what we do is provide aid with no strings attached. And so the more that came, the more that, you're, that people won't value freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened. Not, it's a, that's what needs explanation. Like, why did we value freedom? And, and uh, one of the essays, one of the important essays I think we wrote, Ilan and I wrote and Uncle edited right after 9-11 or in the years after 9-11 was, uh, was an essay directly related to this. It was the whole idea of, of what it means to bring freedom, uh, the, the forward strategy for freedom, Bush's forward strategy for freedom. It's in um, Winning the Unwinnable War, uh, the, the, the uh, book that uh, Ilan edited. Um, and, and these are the kind of issues we deal in that essay. So I encourage people to get the book and, and read the essay. All right, Gene. Um, I guess this is just a quote. It's not a question, but he, he writes, there's a quote from Clinton, 1998. I nearly got him and I could have killed him, but I would have had to destroy a little town called Kandahar in Afghanistan and kill 300 innocent women and children. And then I would have had, I would have been no better than him. This is relating to uh, bin Laden. Um, Bonnie asks, should government recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan? Should we send humanitarian aid to Afghanistan? It seems difficult to know when or if aid is sent. Um, can I do this quickly? <laughs> no, of course not. 
Uh, this is an enemy government. We should have nothing to do with them. We should not sanction anybody having anything to do with them. Uh, you know, this, I mean, we should blow them out of the, uh, you know, out of, uh, out of this world. Uh, we should, we should, you know, blow them out of existence. But given that we're not going to do that, uh, we should completely um, isolate them. I've given, uh, you know, I've done many shows on what I believe a rational foreign policy means. And when an, with an enemy, you either destroy them or if you don't need to destroy them, you isolate them completely. You embargo them. You have nothing, zero to do with them. You cannot sanction the evil that is the Taliban. They are an enemy of the United States. And it doesn't matter how they treat women in Afghanistan. Oh, it matters. But that's not the issue. The issue is that they are the, an enemy of the United States. All right. Uh, what are some good sources, books on the 19... Oh, this is Elon. On the 1953 coup in Iran and the history of oil in Iran leading up to it. Thank you guys for putting on a wonderful show today. You mentioned some books, Elon. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a history, I think it's called The Prize. I mean, you might've read it. I forget the author, but that covers the presence of American oil exploration through in the Middle East. So that's an interesting place to look at the, just what are some of the historical episodes. And on the Iranian uh, coup and the role of America, there was an article in Foreign Affairs by a, a scholar called Ray Take. I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name, but he's of Iranian origin. And he goes through, this is about five years ago, maybe sooner, or more recent, recent. And he goes through and says, well, what do we now know about 1953? What was the US role in that? And I think it's worth reading. Uh, I think you can find it easily on the web. How do you spell uh, and, his last name, Take? Yeah, let me, let me Google that to get it right. But uh, the author of the prize is Daniel Jurgen, one of my colleagues just to help me. Uh, locate that but yeah let me let me find that yeah great all right um andy asks we'll get back to that in a second should america fight islamic fundamentalism on principle around the world in any country it manifests similar to the containment versus communism what is the end point when you're fighting an ideology Ankar, while well, Ilan looks for yeah no i don't think it is any more than it was for communism that you have to fight it everywhere every manifestation what you're concerned with is threats to america and it's when it rises to the level of threatening to america which clearly iran did and when it takes uh, uh, u.s embassies but when it, uh, it's the chanting over and over death to americans that it is you and you have to um cut it off at its root or you a different metaphor at the head so that Iran is the inspiration, it's the political inspiration. And this is part of what's relevant about states. These um, causes come to be actual threats to you when they're combined with the resources and power of governments, of states. And so if you had ended it in Iran, there may have been pockets still in other places and so on, but the idea that they would think about attacking the US that's what you're trying to end in the same way that to say we demoralize the Japanese is not to say every last person committed to Imperial Japan, we either killed or changed their minds or something. But what we destroyed is their willingness to take up arms against the US. And that's what you have to do. Yeah. And, and, and I, I said this during the time when ISIS was killing people and terrorist attacks all over Europe. 
very few people are willing to be suicide bombers. I mean, very few people are willing to be suicide bombers, period. But suddenly very few people are willing to be suicide bombers to a failing ideology. That is, if the ideology is going to fail, if they know that, they're not going to engage. Um, and the source of their, their inspiration and their self-esteem, pseudo-self-esteem, was Iran. Iran was a success. If you had demolished Iran, the problem goes away for the most part. Yes, there might be pockets here and there to clean up, but that's trivial. Uh, it's our weakness that makes it grow and emboldens them and, 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 and expands them. Uh, they, they're not going to attack the United States if we're strong, and they're not going to attack the United States in the or, or Europe in the name of something they know is a loser. Uh, partially, if you think about a religionist, if Allah is not on their side, i.e. these Americans beat them, then you know that shakes their confidence in what if what they that what they're doing is what Allah really wants them to do. Elon, do you have this citation? Yeah. So the uh, two sources that would be useful for people. So one is a book called Eternal Iran, and that's uh, co-authored by Clawson and Rubin. That came out uh, mid 2010s, I think. And then the article I was referring to by Ray Take, and his name is spelled T A K E H. E-Y-H, sorry. And he has an article in Foreign Affairs, July, August, 2014. And the, the headline for people who want to Google it is what really happened in Iran. And it's, I mean, his recent scholarship, he's, he's trying to push back on some of the sort of memes or cliched perspectives on this that are not very critical. Uh, and I think it's worth reading just to get more sense of, well, what do we now know? What's historical research showing us about the role? And I think the, the takeaway I had from this was, yeah, this is used as a soundbite. No, most people who use this don't have a clue what actually happened. So I think it's worth uh, taking that perspective. And the Clawson and Rubin book is is more a history of Iran, and it covers this episode in in uh, as part of doing that. And I mean, it, it it's worth seeing the whole trajectory and what Mossadegh was the prime minister at the time. What was he actually like? Is he just, please don't think he was a Jeffersonian (laughs) idol. I mean, he had, and it's not to to endorse removing him or anything like that, but again, just to to understand better what actually happened. All right, Elon, why don't we do a few of the uh, questions you had, and then I've got two, four, six, eight last questions. Okay. So, it's coming. hard to know at what point these came up in the conversations. So we'll do, try to figure out what the context was. It's hard to answer the questions about that. So question one is, what is your opinion of how the future would have evolved with that strategy, presumably the one we were advocating for, instead of Iraq and Afghanistan fiascos? Uh, I mean, I think things would have been a lot better. We would have not had so many of the ripple effects from those fiascos. So ISIS only existed and became strong because of America's response in Iraq to the insurgency was to fight to a stalemate, not to, not to crush it. And ISIS really emerges as the strongest, best fighters from the insurgency. So you can imagine how ruthless they were. Afghanistan, we'll just look at the news. We, I mean, I know you did a number of commentaries on this, uh, you're on, so people are probably familiar with your view. Yeah. It is... I mean, I, I'm beginning to think that the Afghanistan episode is going to be like what 1979 was to the US. I mean, it's something you don't live down. And particularly because there was a clear cut issue. I mean, among many other things, there was a clear cut issue with the, the Afghanis who helped America and who are expecting to be protected 
and who have every claim on us to, to help them get out of this place, knowing the risks they took. And I, to me, that is one of the most disgusting aspects of that episode. So anyway, I mean, I think the, the bottom line is so many, it's hard to say the counterfactual, what would the world look like absent two major fiascos, but I think you can, so much more intellectual power and productivity would have gone into making the world a better place and more productive and better technology and advances everywhere. Just think about the opportunity cost that war creates. War is in inherently destructive. So you want to avoid it at every cost because it puts resources to, it's, it's a misallocation in, in certain sense. So because you, you have to have in order to defend yourself, but it's not a productive use in that respect. So let me try an alternative universe for you guys. If we had done the right thing, which is incomprehensible because if we'd done the right thing, we would have had the right philosophy and, you, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine. But, yeah, 5,000 fewer Americans would have died, maybe more than that. Um, you would have had uh, uh, hundreds of terrorists uh, who died in Europe uh, during the 90, the 2000s, uh, 2010s would have not died, but much more than that. Um, unclear if Obama would have ever been president. Unclear if Donald Trump would have ever been president or where we would be today, right? Uh, uh, an America would have arisen out of 9-11, strong, confident, with immense self-esteem and, 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 and a confidence in the world. I think China would have evolved differently. I think a lot of the evolution of China over the last five years, uh, the, the decline, uh, the, the move towards much more authoritarianism is a consequence of American weakness. Hong Kong might still be free today. So you could go on and on. The world, I mean, it's a, what Elon just said, the world would be a much, much, much better place. These things have dramatic consequences. They're, they're, not, they're not trivial. You could see how American weakness, to go back to Ankar's point in World War II, allowing communism to survive and to thrive, led to communist dictatorship all over the world. China, Vietnam, Korea, uh, Communism was victorious all over. What would the world have been like if, uh, if Patton would have been allowed to take Czechoslovakia and, and, and move towards Eastern Europe? Uh, the world would be completely different today. And I think the same is true if we had responded properly to 9-11, the world would be completely different and hard to tell in what ways. Um, but a much healthier America, much, much healthier America. Uh, I put one issue kind of one concrete issue which i think is underappreciated which is so it was imperative to remove the iranian regime but i also think iran was the most plausible place in the middle east where what could have taken over afterwards would have been decent and pro-american that that among the population i think there is a significant minority that longs to be Western and to have, that admires America in a certain sense. It's part of why they have to chant death to America all the time. So, because there's an element of the population that is resistant to that. I think of Iran as, I mean, compared to Iraq, for instance, much more civilized in the sense of a culture. And that's what you need if you're going to actually do that this kind of nation building, it's certainly not always in your self-interest. But if you think it is, Iran was a much, much, much more plausible place than Afghanistan or Iraq. And if you imagine that happening just in the Middle East, how different the Middle East would be? Yeah, yeah. 
and the entire world because of the lesson learned. It, it, it truly is what it means. Okay, uh, next question, Elon. I, I, I'm not sure if this one is responding to the same kind of thing. It's what, what your opinions of how such a post-nuclear future would have evolved. And I wonder if it's, that it's in reaction to your comment about potentially using nuclear weapons in response. I'm not totally clear. If the person asked, it wants to repost, but what, do you want to respond to that? What was the question? What was the post? What is your opinion of how such a post-nuclear future would have evolved? And I'm wondering if it's in the context of using... Well, I don't weapons. think anybody advocated for using nuclear weapons uh, post 9-11. It was unnecessary. Uh, the, the enemy was pretty pathetic. It was not like Japan of 1945 or Germany of 1944 even. Um, this, was a, this was an enemy that was easily defeatable without the use of nuclear weapons, a variety of reasons why you wouldn't want to use them in that region at that point in time. Uh, but that, but as Leonard Peikoff famously said on O'Reilly, that's a military decision. That's not a political one. It, it, and it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a philosophical one. The point was to win, to win quickly. Um, if America would have used nuclear weapons, the same thing would have happened as happened after, uh, uh, there would have been some respect for the United States. Uh, it's willingness to win and its willingness to defeat its enemies. Um, but again, I don't think it was necessary, and I don't think they should have been used. Okay. Let me zip through the, the remaining few. Uh, do you think you'd see the same kind of patriotism, superficial as much of it was, if the attacks of 9-11 had happened today instead of 20 years ago? And my answer is no. I don't know. I'll pass it back to you. I think no as well partially because 9-11 happened and what the response was. So if there was no 9-11 it happened today, I don't know. But if, if given everything that's happened since 9-11, we had another attack today, I think Americans would be much more cynical and skeptical and there'd be even more conspiracy theories. I mean, uh, I, I, I can see a lot of people saying it wasn't the Islamists, it was the left. And the left are Islamists, they're all the same, I, you know, because anti-Americanism is the left. So, you know, it would be even more of a disaster than what we have, than what we had in 9-11. I, I think the, the country is in a much worse position today than it was 20 years ago, philosophically, ideologically, psychologically. And I don't think of the patriotism after 9-11 as superficial. Um, it wasn't maybe as deep as the patriotism in World War II, but that's in the midst of fighting a war and actually fighting. So yep. here, what was required was leadership. And the, I think people were ready to rethink and said, like, something's gone really wrong. And if you had leaders telling them, yeah, things have gone wrong, and we've thought about this wrong, and we're reversing stands on various things, not starting off with, we're evading this, and we're evading that, and we're going to invite Iran into uh, to fight these wars. And so there was a real opportunity, part of the tragedy of 9-11, 9-11 were attacks, but part of our, that our response was tragic is American people were ready for leadership, yep. Yep. real leadership, and we did not get it. And so I agree, because we did not get it, now if it happened, the response will be very different. And you could already see that. We, had, we didn't talk about this episode, but the Danish cartoon crisis yeah. um, was, for me, actually the most depressing thing after 9-11. Yeah. 
the idea, because it, it was very similar to the Rushdie thing, except we're at war or supposedly at war against the people threatening to kill the Danish cartoonists. And, so, and the response from our governments and from the people was so pathetic that, yeah, what are, I, I mean, part of what is so bad about Afghanistan is it makes it more likely we'll be attacked. And what will happen if we're attacked again? I mean, Iran, you brought up the NSA. Part of what will happen is we can't fight, like we can't have Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. So we have to bunker in even more. And the government's control over us will increase. Like if you think the TSA and things like that and NSA surveillance was bad, what it would become? Oh, much bigger walls of all kinds, of all kinds in every aspect and, and surveillance and Absolutely. Because we can't go out. Yeah. That would be unthinkable. So it, the whole last 20 years or the last six, seven years have been about, well, we failed at going out there. So all we can do is hunker down and all the enemies out there, we fear them so much that we need to build walls of all types in order to hunker down and defend ourselves. And I mean, it's part of the anti-immigration sentiment. Yeah, um, and, and this is part of the, to say, Trump rose in part by playing on people's um, frustration and worse with 9-11. Yep. And he's not a solution, but I think that's part of what, would he have been a political figure absent the unbelievable response after 9-11? I think, no. No, I don't think so. I don't yeah, think I mean, so. I think that, I just want to add to that. Um, so yeah, in, in my quick answer, no, I was assuming that, um, 9-11 had not happened and it would happen. So, and I think part of the reason I think that, and I'll tie this to, to the Trump issue you mentioned, is I think there's so much evidence today that the, the point Dr. Peikoff makes in talk America versus Americans is Americans have turned so far away from what America really means today. And I just remind you of what happened in January with the storming of of the, uh, the Capitol building and so many other things that have happened in the last few years where the takeaway for me as an immigrant who's become an American by choice after an arduous struggle to get here and to do all the check every box that you could possibly do is that I, I'm among people who don't really know what this country is about. And yeah. I'm, I have that perspective because I'm an outsider. And I think even, not, even being an American now, I think I'm still an outsider. I just don't think there is a sense in which enough of people really appreciate what is distinctive about America. And the, to go to the Trump phenomenon, I think you're right. One of the, if you go back to the campaign and one of the things he that came out once he was president is it was such a big deal for him to say the words radical Islam, which is not even a great way to formulate the problem, but he, he put, he went on stage and said, there, I said it. And then people cheered. And I think there was a sense in which people had bottled up for a long time, particularly under Obama, who was really bad about this. So we can't even talk about it. Are you serious? And then Trump comes along and says, I'm going to break this taboo. And again, I don't I agree. It's not the solution. But there was such frustration at, with the evasiveness and with the failures that were compounding for decade plus that he comes along. And then he, by saying this, he gains something with a lot of people who felt like, we've been screwed over for all this time and you can't, we can't even talk about it. And then notice, if you go back to this, notice the way he was ridiculed. Oh yeah, you, and I think Obama was saying this as well. 
a lot of people in the press were saying, oh, you think just by saying the words, you're going to make a difference? Like, this is ridiculous. And you know, people dismissing him. And there's a way in which, yes, it's not a magic formula. It doesn't solve anything. But it, it was symptomatic of where we were, where you know, uh, uh, someone who's deeply immersed in Islam shoots up Fort Hood, killing people. And that's a workplace violence incident. Yep. And that's the, that's, and we have not mass casualty attacks. We have man-caused crises, or, or I forget what they call it, There's some a euphemistic way of talking about mass casualty terrorist attacks. So I think there's something there, but it goes to this issue of, we don't know who we are. So how are we ever going to talk about how to deal with who they are and what they're trying to do to us? We won't name good. them. Yeah, we, we won't name them. them. And, and, and I think they go together. Because he was the one who should have named them. He used Islamo-fascist for one week. Yeah. And got slap, uh, uh, you know, some uh, flack for it, gave up on it, and and moved back to calling him a terrorist. All right, I still got like nine questions. Um, let, let me just zip through two more because I think one we've answered and one we can answer briefly. So one is, um, you you touched on this here on how will bombing Saudi Arabia and Iran have stopped the Nice attack in France uh, and the guy who drove a, a, a truck into the the. Christmas Bazaar in, I think it was in, in Germany. And I mean, I've, I've written about this. You've commented. I think the issue, we've already addressed this. Is you have to address the fundamental. And yes, that it does, does it mean you'll get to zero immediately? Are there still people willing to kill themselves? It's a vanishingly small number over time. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make them believe that their cause is lost. And when you get to that point, how many people really want to do suicide attacks at that point? But just a, a quick a quick point, even our weak response to ISIS, the fact that ISIS leadership is gone, they're killed, they have no territory. There's very little terrorism in Europe. There hasn't been a major terrorist attack in Europe in years since ISIS was defeated. Everything I said at the time has come true. Um, if you defeat ISIS, the terrorism in Europe goes away. People don't want to, are not going to, don't get passionate, excited about an ideology that's just proven itself as a loser. Um, and uh, defeating the enemy is the way, or, or defeating a bulk of the enemy is a way to uh, eliminate the motivation of its satellites and its troops. So let me take the last one and arc you and go back to yours. So the last one is uh, uh, the comment uh, question is, I think now we are sitting ducks. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I got exactly the same question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> About thinning ducks from Gail. Um, what if it's also Gail? Yeah, I think um, it might be. Yeah. Are we sitting ducks? Yes and, and, and no in some senses. Yes, uh, because we've not learned anything and the ideology is still out there and they're still, they still hate us and they still want to kill us and they're still uh, motivated to do so. Uh, no, only in the sense of I'll, I'll, I'll make the argument that I made to Leonard uh, so many years ago. They're pretty incompetent. They're pretty uh, ineffectual. They are weak uh, they, militarily. They're weak financially, weaker than they used to be. Uh, many uh, of the countries like Saudi Arabia have moved away from funding terrorism because I think they started suffering the consequences and they, they, they did it themselves without our kind of urging them. Um, so we're vulnerable. I, I wouldn't be shocked if it happened again uh, soon. I'd be less shocked if it happened again in 10, 20 years. It, it will happen, but 
you know, it's like the Soviet Union, right? Ayn Rand always said at the end of the day, I'm not really worried about the Soviets because they'll implode, they'll, they'll kill themselves off. I think the same thing of the Islamists. Um, they are lower tech, so they can get away with doing stuff that is shocking with less tech. But fundamentally, they, I don't fear Islam taking over the world. I've always said this. Uh, Islam is too weak, too pathetic, too, uh, in, in every respect, to take over the world. But what it can do is it can make us become more authoritarian. It's what Ankar said before. The real danger of Islamic terrorism is not that we will succumb to Islam and Sharia law. It's never been that. That's never been a risk. And I don't even think that's a risk in Europe, really. The real risk is that it makes us fascists. It makes us turn against us. It makes us start concentration camps. It makes us give the NSA unlimited powers. That's the real threat. And that is coming our way, really, no matter what the Islamists do. Um, it's just that they might speed it up if they attack us. Okay, let's, uh, let's take some of these. Uh, best friend, Hank, you put a lot of money into this, but it's not really on the topic. But I'm just going to throw it out there. And if you have one or two sentence responses, you guys can take it. Why can't our American politicians allow us to be truly free? I think the answer to that is we don't want to be free. That's the answer. So we elect politicians who don't support our freedom, but we don't want to be free. We don't even know what freedom is as a people. Uh, so it's not an issue of allowing us. Free people don't wait for their politicians to allow them or not to allow them to be free. They force the politician's hand. And I think that goes back to Ankar's answer from before about freedom is a massive achievement. We, Americans today, haven't achieved it. All right. Jacob, how did uh, how did the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan contribute to 9-11 and will current events contribute to another large attack? Uh, Ilan, how did it contribute? Well, back in the 90s, if that's what the question is. Yeah, well, yeah the question is back then when they, how did that created, make it possible? Well, it created a place where Al-Qaeda could be harbored and work and, and carry out their attacks. And that train. is, yeah. yeah, and train. And then we knew there were training camps and that it was well known. Uh, so I think that groups like Al-Qaeda need a space where they can operate and support. And that be, just being in, a, in the sovereign territory, quasi-sovereign territory of the Taliban meant that they could do a lot of bad things from where they were. So. Yeah, and I think it's, it, yeah, go ahead. Uncle. I was going to say, think about it in terms of the, uh, propaganda value, and but propaganda. Ayn said like, it's a legitimate term, so don't think of propaganda as, as a negative. It's it's they've defeated Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia has retreated from Afghanistan. They're they're fighting for a religious cause. Here's proof that God's on our side, wants us to ascend, and the Taliban regime is putting their version of Islam into practice. And this got worldwide attention. Like women can't go out, they have to be completely veiled. Music is banned, dancing is banned. And this is, yeah, this is, I mean, in terms of recruiting, like this is what we want. And there's a real chance that we'll see this in our lifetime. 
And like, if that's not a drawing card for the people who are sort of semi-committed to this and so, and I'm now going all in and so that look, it's a massive recruiting victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we enabled it. Yes, absolutely. A gun is pointed at you and your attacker hides behind a hostage. You can save yourself at the hostage's expense. What would a modern philosopher say you should do? Um, there's not a answer to that. Um, but, and I don't think it's particularly interesting. What would a modern philosopher say? If you think, what is the morality that's been pounded into us? What it says is, how dare you think your life counts? How dare you think you can put it first? What, what that will translate into and what they recommend, it will be different things. But it, that, the key is to tr- try to drive out of a person's mind that his life happiness counts and that he has some self-esteem that he would think that I'm going to fight for the value that is my person. That is what is driven out and it's driven out in non-emergency situations, not like I'm in an hostage situation. So it's driven out of people about how they think of themselves. And it's part of what it means that we don't value freedom to value freedom is to value the freedom to live your life and pursue your interest and happiness. And the more you think that that's not a sacred cause, the less you care about freedom. All right, so we're gonna do these really fast because there are quite a few of them still. Okay, what America figure would you have, uh, would have had the best response to Islamists? Jefferson versus the African pirates, Patton Sherman versus the South or someone else. Wrong question to ask, this is not about figures. It's not like if, the right person was instead of Bush, that there was no intellectual leadership across the board and the American people, while they were open to an alternative, they didn't demand one. So they, they, they were already weakened. It's not, history's not determined by accidentally the right guy in the right place uh, being there. It's determined by the ideas that are prevalent in the culture and the ideas prevalent in the culture in 9-11 didn't make possible a patent, I don't think. It's not an accident we got Bush. Bush was a man of his time. Okay, are there lessons from the 90s response to Islam, M2, for the response to today's fascists, etc. M2s? Did you see Don Jr.'s viral kind of pro-Taliban tweet? Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what the question is here. But I don't know if you guys want to say anything about the, the, the rights infatuation with the Taliban. I haven't seen the tweet, so I'm not sure what's specifically being referred to. But I mean, th- this was something Ayn Rand said about um, Iran. And it I think it is part of Reagan's response to Iran that she said the because the, it's really with Reagan that the primitive religious mindset is being brought into politics and it's being brought on and it's supposed it's on the side of freedom and yeah. capitalism. Uh, Reagan opens the door and invites these people in and has an element of it in his thinking, which is why he has a very different view of Iran than of communism, for instance, and he's willing to negotiate with Iran. And what she said, what Ayn Rand said, which I think is right, is their view of what they want is Iran. 
I mean, it might be a Christian version of it, but that's what they want. Yeah. Um, and so that when we're 20 to 30 years down the road from that, that there's some more explicit about, yeah, like this totalitarian um, Taliban, it's sort of, yeah, that there are, there's things we like about it. I don't find that at all surprising that it's more open now. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, there was a, a bunch of stuff on the right uh, about uh, the Taliban believe in something and they're willing to fight. We're not. We don't believe in anything. Uh, there was even a suggestion that the Taliban, and, and this connected to something China did as well, the Taliban men are men, you know, the real men, none of this. Uh, I don't know if you saw that China banned effeminate men from television. Uh, something about that, yeah. Yeah, and Tucker Carlson praised it to the, you know, was all over praising it. You know, these, these regimes understand that men are real men. It's just, it's so sickening. It's, uh, um, all right. Uh, Enric asks, what is Saudi, what, who in Saudi Arabia uh, support terrorism? Is it the royal family? Is it the government? Is it institutions? I'll just, I, I mean, my sense is that it's the, the, they use these religious foundations as fronts to support it, it's never the government explicitly. In Iran, it's the government explicitly. There used to be a line item in the budget, terrorism. Um, they took it off because they were being sued in America, so it's, it's complicated. But Iran explicitly is the government. In Saudi Arabia, they hide it, primarily in part of um, through religious institutions. And it's it's where the money is. So it's the royal family, it's rich Saudis, it's the bin Laden family, it's who are uh, contractors and, and, and very wealthy families. So it's people like that. It's not explicit government policy. Well, let me, let me just add to that. So when I looked at this a while back, things might have changed, but I agree with your characterization. It's these, these foundations and charities and their, their money comes from the royal family. But two important things. The Saudi royal family is massive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's thousands of people, many of them millionaires plus, some of them billionaires. And two... We have very de de defined institutions. So when we talk about the U.S. government, we know where it begins and we know where it ends. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, it's much more murky because it's a monarchy. And yes, there's institutions, but there's a lot of bleeding in from family to institutions. And it's not, it's not easy to draw a line. Okay, this is a government action versus this is the action of a royal family member who happens to have some government role. Uh, and is it directly government policy? Is it so it, that's part of how it becomes um, clouded and it gives some sense of deniability. Yeah, it was this one mavericks prince somewhere. Don't don't blame us. But, it, it, you know, a monarchy is not a clean kind of government. So it's hard to draw those lines. And, and for that reason, I think it's it, it, this is part of the tragedy of America's policy towards Saudi Arabia. There's no real thinking about this regime at all. Like they have blood on their hands, even if the guy you're sitting across the table with is not the guy who pulled the trigger. But th this is what happens. It's I don't think you can absolve them of responsibility because it's so uh, convoluted and and uh, indistinct. All right. So we got three final questions. Um, would a proper American response to 9-11 include killing or otherwise removing the Saudi monarchy? I, I my views on this. I, I, I don't think that was necessary. It would have it would have uh, required 
um, the shutting down of all funding of all uh, religious institutions around the world by the, the Saudi family under threat of uh, their uh, killing and removal. So I think you would have been able to subdue them without actually uh, killing them or removing them. Um, and, and I'm not sure what you would replace them in Saudi Arabia with. So you'd have to subdue whoever was running Saudi Arabia, no matter what their affiliation was. But they'd have to stop doing what they were doing. Um, let's see. Tom asks, I bet if we thwarted the tech and 9-11 media lawyers, et cetera, would be saying, how did we know the terrorists were going to do that evil act? You mean in advance, if we'd stopped it in advance? Yeah, but, but there was plenty of evidence. So maybe they wouldn't have got the kind of life sentences you would have wanted to see, but at least there wouldn't have been an attack. Um, and, uh, and some of these guys would have been in jail. All right, last one, uh, Bash Brannigan. I, that's, that's, a, that's such a Western name. It's like he took it from some cowboy movie or something. Uh, sorry if you've answered, but how possibly could the U.S. have defeated the Taliban completely if they were being assisted and harbored by Pakistan? You mean Pakistan, the mighty Pakistan government, the, this mighty country that we need to fear? Uh, I mean, I, 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 all you'd have to do to the Pakistani government is go boo. I mean, really, uh, you know, and they would, they would do whatever you wanted them to do. What exactly? They have nuclear weapons. Granted, what are they going to do with them? How long would it take? Do you think American special forces to take the Pakistani facilities that have all these nuclear weapons? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a military strategist, but I'm guessing it would be days, well before they could launch them, if they could even launch them. We don't even know what their true capabilities are. Um, this. I used to get these questions about Iraq all the time. The Iraqi military is so powerful. You have no conception about how bad these militaries are and how corrupt they are and how much most people who rule Pakistan want to live. They're not completely suicidal like the Iranians are. And you just have to threaten their lives. And it would, I mean, I'm not sure the United States should allow Pakistan to have nuclear weapons anyway. So it might be, it, in a proper foreign policy, we might be taking out the nuclear weapons anyway. Um, but suddenly, them harboring the Taliban, you just have to stand up for yourself and actually demand it and be willing to put in place the force to do it. And, and after taking out the Iranians, I'll just say this, after taking out the Iranians, do you think anybody, if you did it properly, right? I used to say, uh, you know, Ankars make the case that maybe you could convert Iran into a into a Western country. But in case you couldn't, I used to say, give them the infrastructure their philosophy deserves. And if you'd done that, do you think any country in the world would dare, including China and Russia, by the way, would dare to say no to the United States on anything? No, they, they would succumb immediately and ask how they could be our best friends. Sorry, Ankar, you were saying something? I was going to say, I, I think part of the question is it's too um, concrete bound. It's not taking enough into consideration the ideologies. Because I think even um, if Bush had actually gone after the Taliban, like, we're going to kill you. Yeah. And they have connections to Pakistan. So Pakistan would have been so afraid to, to be seen as cooperating with the Taliban. There might be some underground things, but the, uh, what had to happen 
is that your cause is coming to an end. And people who take up arms for this, you're, we're going to kill you. And if they have just destroyed the Taliban, um, things would have been very different than what. That's why I think the once we just disperse them, let them flee, tried to negotiate with them. So that was we're not going to be able to do anything good after that. But that's looking at it from the point of view of what they're celebrating is their ideology ascended. And what you have to say is it's no longer ascended. It is finished. And if that had happened, Pakistan would have been so scared. Um, I agree completely. All right. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Elon. Uh, thanks, Ankar, for joining me today. Um, you know, it's a pretty sad day, uh, not only because of what happened on 9-11, which is tragic and, and horrible and, and sad, but because of everything that's happened since and the response and, and uh, the, the place America is in today. But I think the one thing you guys who are listening should, um, you know, take as a positive, if you will. Uh, there were people who stood up. Um, there is a philosophy to defend America and, and to defend what, what needed to be done and presented a, a vision for America. There is a force to be reckoned with in the world out there, ideological force to be reckoned with, and that's Ayn Rand. And, um, and uh, you know, your support of the Ayn Rand Institute, to the extent that you guys are supporting the Ayn Rand Institute, is making that defense possible. If there is a future for America, it's going to be from objectivism, from Ayn Rand, and, and uh, you know, presented to the world from the Ayn Rand Institute. So thank you all for the support. Many of you have been with us for the last 20 years, supported us through some pretty tough times because we didn't get to discuss all the, how difficult it was for us to do what we did because it was difficult. Um, it, it, many of you stood by us, uh, so we appreciate that. Many have continued to support the Institute through some pretty rough times around 9-11 and around the threats. I mean, I used to give talks with um, bulletproof vests on. I mean, that's, uh, and, and uh, you know, and there were real attacks on us. And uh, uh, so it, it, it's, it, this was not a, this never a trivial issue from our perspective. Uh, so thank you guys. Thanks for the support today. Uh, you, you guys were very generous today and asked a lot of good questions. Thanks again to Elon and Ankar. Uh, and um, I'll see you guys soon. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.